There's a shortage of the monkeypox vaccine in the U.S. and the outbreak is spreading rapidly. The White House is pursuing a controversial strategy where each person gets only 20% of the full dose. Monkeypox vaccine concerns coming up. It's Thursday, August 18th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a judge today told the Justice Department it must provide a redacted version of the affidavit behind the search of Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. Many Americans think the fentanyl entering the U.S. is smuggled in by migrants. It's not true, but the belief persists. Once it gets out there, it's hard to correct, which means we have to deal with the consequences. Misinformation about immigration is on the rise. And the water level in Western Europe's most important waterway, the Rhine, is at a record low after a long, dry summer. The forecast and the latest news are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. A federal magistrate judge says he is inclined to release the affidavit supporting the FBI search of former President Donald Trump's Florida home. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the judge is giving the Justice Department a week to propose redactions. The judge says he's not convinced the entire affidavit needs to remain under seal. Instead, he's ordered prosecutors to prepare a redacted version and send that version to him by August 25th. National security official Jay Bratt told the court DOJ worries about threats to witnesses and to the FBI agents who carried out the Mar-a-Lago search. He says the criminal investigation, which involves obstruction and mishandling government secrets, is in its early stages. Former President Donald Trump has not filed formal court papers since last week's search. Instead, Trump posted on social media that the document should be released in the interest of transparency. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Another major case against Trump's playing out in New York. One of the former president's most trusted business executives has pleaded guilty to 15 felony counts of conspiring in a tax evasion scheme with the Trump organization. But Alan Weisselberg has not implicated Trump himself. Weisselberg entered his plea in a Manhattan courtroom today as part of his plea deal with the district attorney's office. Leah Merritt's with member station WNYC has more. The judge ran Alan Weisselberg through all 15 counts, read them to him. He admitted to each one, and then they sketched out the details of a plea agreement. Basically, in exchange for pleading to all 15 counts, Weisselberg will get five months in prison, which will likely be reduced to about 100 days. Uh, but he will have to testify about his former employer, the Trump Organization, and its role in the crimes he's already admitted to. Ilya Merritt's reporting on the possibility Weisselberg may be called to testify for the prosecution at the Trump Organization's trial this October. Kentucky's near-total ban on abortions will remain in effect after the state Supreme Court denied a request to block the measure. Kentucky Public Radio's Ryland Barton says a legal challenge against the ban is ongoing. Kentucky's trigger law bans all abortions in the state except in cases when a patient's life is at risk. The state's two abortion providers sued over the law, and while a lower court initially blocked the ban, appeals courts have allowed it to be enforced while it makes its way through the legal system. The state Supreme Court did set a date when it'll hear arguments over the case, November 15th, a week after Election Day. That's when Kentuckians will weigh in on an anti-abortion amendment to the state constitution. For NPR News, I'm Ryland Barton in Louisville. Another sign of a slowdown in the housing sector. The National Association of Realtors reporting today existing home sales in July fell 5.9 percent from the month before before to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 4.81 million. 
The Dow closes up 18 points. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Leaders in the Boston business community say they're concerned that the month-long shutdown of the MBTA's Orange Line could spell trouble for the bottom line. There are some 16,000 businesses within a half mile of the Orange Line. The closure begins tomorrow night at 9 for repairs and safety upgrades. Here's WBUR's Simone Rios. Business has only had a couple weeks to prepare for the shutdown. Now many will have to deal with reduced foot traffic, problems getting deliveries, and late-arriving employees. Shigan Idowu, Chief of Economic Opportunity and Inclusion for Boston, says the city will work to help affected businesses. Hundreds of service providers to small businesses that we're going to be working with on a daily basis uh, throughout this month to provide additional resources, whether it's technical assistance, marketing, um, and and all other types of services uh, to make sure that they survive uh, uh, through this shutdown. The city plans to create exclusive bus lanes on several streets and eliminate parking spaces to make more space for shuttle buses. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios. Police say a driver is being evaluated after she drove a car onto the second floor of the South Shore Plaza Mall in Braintree this morning. Police say when they arrived, the driver was still seated inside the vehicle in the mall talking with bystanders. Investigators say it appears the woman drove from a parking garage over a pedestrian bridge into the mall and traveled about six yards down the main corridor before she stopped. Nobody was hurt. UMass Chan Medical School officials are working to open a new campus in Burlington. The planned campus is a collaboration between UMass Chan and the Beth Israel Leahy Health System. School officials say they hope to open the new campus at Leahy Hospital and Medical Center in time to accept students for 2024. If an accrediting body approves, the education center would be the second regional campus of the state's only public medical school, the others in Springfield. The change means Leahy Hospital would drop its affiliation with Tufts School of Medicine. In the forecast, partly cloudy overnight tonight. Slight chance of a shower on the early side. Temperatures just about 60 overnight. And for tomorrow, bright sunshine. Should be warmer as well. Highs in the upper 80s. This is WBUR. It's 406. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. On a Thursday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There has been a development related to the search of President Trump's Florida home. At a hearing today, a federal magistrate reached a compromise ruling, ruling that the government must provide a redacted version of the affidavit justifying last week's search of Mar-a-Lago. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart gave the government a week to produce the affidavit with sensitive information blocked, a sign that the currently sealed document could soon be released in some form. NPR's Greg Allen was in the courtroom in West Palm Beach today, and he joins us now. Hi, Greg. Hi, Wana. So affidavits like these are almost never unsealed, especially while an investigation is still ongoing. So, Greg, can you tell us why the court is considering releasing this one, at least partially, it sounds like? Right. Well, well one reason is that there really aren't other cases like this one. Uh, Judge Reinhardt and the lawyers, both for the government and media organizations, all talked about the unprecedented nature of this case and the heightened public interest. You know, we're talking about the search of a former president's residence to recover government documents that include classified material. They also agreed that under the law, the burden is on the government now to show why it must, why these documents must remain sealed. 
uh, sealed, a lawyer for the Justice Department, counterintelligence chief Jay Bratt, first tried to convince the judge that the affidavit should be sealed. Unsealing, he said, would provide a roadmap to a criminal investigation that he said is still in its early stages. It also could have an impact on witnesses, he said. It could endanger those whose identities were disclosed in the affidavit. It could also discourage additional witnesses from cooperating in the future as this investigation goes forward. Uh, Judge Reinhardt has seen the affidavit, of course. He reviewed it before approving the search warrant. And after hearing all the arguments, he said he believed that it can be released with redactions. Okay, so, so far, has there been any sort of indication of how much of the affidavit will be left after it is redacted? That's a good question. Uh, it's really hard to say at this point. Lawyers for media organizations agreed that portions of the affidavit uh, should be redacted, you know, the parts that identify witnesses or agents or deal with the investigation. Uh, the government lawyer uh, mentioned the volatile situation surrounding the search, which makes it so sensitive. He talked about the two FBI agents whose identities were disclosed early on and who received death threats as part of this. He also mentioned the incident last week in Cincinnati where a man who was trying to break into an FBI office and then was killed. At one point he said so much would have to be redacted from the document, what remained would be largely useless to the media and the public. Attorneys from media organizations conceded that there would have to be redactions, but they pointed out that much of the information likely in the affidavit has already been disclosed. With the, uh, the classified nature of the documents, the meetings between the National Archives and Trump lawyers uh, about the material at Mar-a-Lago, a lot of that's already been disclosed by Trump and in media reports and is probably in the affidavit. So ultimately, the judge agreed with the media groups and said that the government should produce a redacted version and gave him a few, a few more days to do so. A few more days. So what else do we know about that timing? How soon could we see some part of this affidavit? Well, again, it's <laughs> up in the air. The government has until next Thursday at noon to submit a redacted affidavit to the judge. And if he agrees with their redactions, he could just sign an order and release it fairly soon, maybe as early as next week. But if, as seems likely, there is some disagreement between the judge and the government on the redactions, that could begin a back and forth between the government and the judge. Uh, some of it might be in his chambers with uh, someone, uh, a court reporter there, or some of it might just be in motions going back and forth. It all could take some time. And then if the government ultimately disagrees with what the judge rules, it may appeal the decision. Okay. And the judge said the affidavit would remain under seal uh, for some time, uh, well, until the appeals are exhausted. So it's possible we might not see actually uh, the release of this affidavit for, for weeks or even longer. All right, watching and waiting. NPR's Greg Allen in West Palm Beach, Florida. Thank you. You're welcome. It was about three months ago that the first case of monkeypox was discovered in the U.S. Now there are well over 13,000 cases. That is more than any other country in the world. The U.S. government's plan to get the disease in check is largely based on a vaccine, but there are a lot of questions about how well that plan might work. So here to take on those questions are two of our NPR health correspondents, Ping Huang and Michaeline Duclef. Hey, you two. Hello, Louise. Um, Ping, you start. Just give us an update. There have been a lot of twists and turns in the vaccine rollout so far. How's it going? Well, it's not going great. I mean, from the beginning, the government was slow to order vaccines. There was a lot of confusion from states, cities, and there have been long lines of people waiting to get it. And many people haven't been able to get one yet. You know, months into the response, the government is still playing catch up. They've recently set up a White House response team. They've shipped more than 700,000 vials of the vaccine out, and they are working to get a lot more, but it just has not been enough. Cases keep rising. The vast majority are still being detected in gay and queer people, primarily men who have sex with men. 
and states and public health officials are getting very frustrated. The added complication is that the White House is now pursuing a new dosing strategy, which involves giving a smaller vaccine dose to more people, and that's been controversial for some. A smaller dose. Okay, what, what is the controversy there? Well, previously, getting that vaccine meant getting a full vial injected into your arm. And now with this new strategy, a smaller dose is getting injected into the skin very close to the surface. And this allows providers to use one fifth of the original dose, which stretches the supply. And that sounds great, right? Stretching the supply. But it isn't all that simple. I mean, from a messaging perspective, it's been very confusing trying to explain why the government thinks a smaller dose will work just as well. Yeah. From a perspective of giving it out, it also takes additional training, different needles. And Dr. Mark Del Beccaro, who's helping to lead the vaccine rollout in Seattle and King County, says it's just hard to get these small doses out of the vials. That the federal announcement of five doses per vial was, I think, incredibly optimistic. And what we're seeing in real life is three to four doses per vial. In reality, this dose-splitting strategy is not yielding as much as federal officials had hoped. And yet, Del Vaccaro says it seems like the government is already using this new math when they count how many doses they're sending to health departments. Michaeline, let me back us up a little bit. Ping's been telling us about vaccine availability, or lack thereof. What about efficacy? If you can get the vaccine, does it work? Yeah, so here's another reason why cutting the dose, as Ping's been talking about, is a bit concerning. Right now, we don't know how well the vaccine works. It clearly offers some protection, but at what level, we don't know. And that's because there has never been a clinical trial to measure its efficacy. In fact, there has been very little testing of this vaccine against monkeypox in people. Most of the studies have been in animals. I was talking to Dr. Bahuma Tatangi about this. She's an infectious disease specialist at Emory University, and she's been immunizing people at her clinic. And here's how she counsels people about the vaccine. I tell them, you know, we do know that you're going to get some protection from this. Some protection is better than no protection. We also do know that it can reduce the severity of the disease if you do develop the disease. But we don't know for a fact that you would be completely protected from getting monkeypox. And to be clear, she's talking about protection with the full vial. If we cut the dose, she says, it could lower that protection further. Can I pause on something you just said? There's been very little testing, you said. There's never been a clinical trial for this vaccine. What is the evidence for giving it to people right now? Yeah, so there's never been a phase three clinical trial to measure efficacy. But this vaccine, which is called Genios, was actually developed to stop smallpox. Versions of this vaccine were what were used to eradicate smallpox. And so versions of this vaccine have been around for decades and have been given to hundreds of millions of people. So it has a very long track record. Back in the 1980s, researchers started to notice something really remarkable about the smallpox vaccine. During monkeypox outbreaks, People who had been immunized against smallpox were actually less likely to get monkeypox. They were protected. And that's because smallpox is closely related to monkeypox. They're a bit like cousins. And since then, researchers have shown that indeed the vaccine does trigger the production of antibodies against monkeypox inside people's blood. And so it's that experiment and some animal studies that this vaccine has been approved on. Um, let me pose another question and, and put this one back to you, Ping. There's the question of, does the vaccine work? There's the question of, do we have enough of them? Then there's the question of, do people want this? Does it seem like people are open to getting the monkeypox vaccine? 
actually, yes. I mean, there's a huge demand right now, and there's many more people that want the vaccine than can actually get it. And one of the biggest concerns at the moment is equity. You know, a disproportionately high number of Black, Latinx members of the gay and queer community are getting monkeypox. And the data suggests that they have had a harder time getting access to vaccines. In North Carolina, for instance, 70% of the monkeypox cases have been in Black men, but just a quarter of the vaccines have gone to them. Chicago is also seeing gaps in vaccines for Black and Latino men. And these are just the places that have shared their data. Kenyon Farrow with the advocacy organization Prep for All says a sentiment that he's been seeing online, especially from gay men of color. Okay, so they let white gay men take all the, the first, you know, full force of doses. And so we're now supposed to believe that, you know, a fifth of the dose is going to do us just as well. Farrow says that public health has a lot of work to do in terms of explaining why they believe that this new strategy is not inferior. Michaelina, I'll give you last word. If we can get enough doses out there and get them to the people who need it and get the people who need it to take it, can, realistically, can we still slow down this outbreak? So there's some tantalizing new data right now that suggests that, yes, this vaccine can slow down monkeypox outbreaks. There are several countries that rolled out the vaccine much earlier than the U.S. did, and that, that includes the U.K. and Germany. And there are signs that their outbreaks are slowing down quite quickly. In the U.K., for example, the number of new cases has been steadily declining for several weeks now. So that's hopeful. But Doctors and researchers I talk to say the vaccine alone isn't enough to stop the outbreak here. People need to reduce their risk. And this is key. Doctors need to catch more of the monkeypox cases out there. Right now, many are still not getting detected. NPR health correspondents Michaeline Duclef and Peng Huang, thanks to you both. You're welcome. You're welcome. listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Education in Afghanistan coming up on WBUR. The Dow ended the day on Wall Street a hair higher, up 19 points. It closed at 33,999. S&P and Nasdaq both closed about a fifth of a percent higher. The S&P settled at 42.84. The Nasdaq closed at 12,965. Cambridge Biotech Company and COVID vaccine maker Moderna has a new chief financial officer. James Mock is set to take over the role. He's a former CFO at the life sciences diagnostic company Perkin Elmer. Mock will be Moderna's third CFO in the last year. He'll take over for David Moline in the next several weeks. Moline returned to the company from retirement after his initial replacement was fired after one day on the job. It's 419. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today, and with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. In the forecast, clouds that have hung around today should make an exit for the weekend. Tonight's lows in the mid-60s, then make way for sunshine tomorrow. Warmer temperatures, too, up around 87. It's 83 degrees right now in Boston. 
funding for WBOR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. Donate your old car to WBUR. It'll have a new life supporting the news, and you could get a tax deduction. Go to WBUR.org slash cars. Thanks. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is launching a program to help longstanding independent businesses in the city. The Legacy Business Program will offer 25 businesses greater visibility, services, and eligibility for city grants. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The choice to flee Afghanistan was not an easy one for Rangina Hamidi. When I spoke with her last year, she was still in Kabul, debating what she and her husband should do as Taliban forces captured city after city in the country. She described the fear that she felt as she watched her daughter play with a friend outside. But me as a mother sitting in my home, feeling the unease, it struck me to think and look at them and say, God forbid, but something can happen any minute. And these joyous little girls playing in the garden uh, may end in a second. Rangina Hamidi was Afghanistan's Minister of Education until last August. And today she joins us from Arizona, where she and her family have started their life anew. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. You know, when you and I spoke a a year ago, you knew you would have a chance to leave Afghanistan with your husband if it came to that. A chance that you said you knew so many others did not have. May, May I ask you, how did you manage to leave the country? Finally, after one week of debating, uh, debating in the head, really, uh, emotionally, whether we should leave or not, um, I think finally my motherly instincts and then the fact that my immediate family, my mother and sisters and uh, extended family members who were living in America uh, were pleading with me uh, to please not allow the opportunity for them to suffer yet one more time because um, if the audience or if you remember, my family did lose my father yes. to a side bomber in 2011. In Kandahar. Exactly. Finally, I think we had no choice but to look at the deadline that was in our face. The clock was ticking, literally. August 31st was going to be the last planes to leave. Hmm. Ultimately, we, we, we had to. And you were one of the lucky ones. You're a U.S. citizen, right? Absolutely. Well, I understand that your daughter is in seventh grade right now. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. And I ask this because the Taliban has barred education for girls between seventh and twelfth grade back in Afghanistan. So if your daughter were still there, her formal education would essentially be over, right? Do you ever think about that as you watch your daughter now do her homework or go to class? 
you know, I said this was the main reason why I ultimately had to make the decision to leave because I knew Zara would not have, at least immediately, uh, she would not have a future under that administration. Um, and of course, dropping her off to school, picking her up from school, you know, listening to her little mind growing and learning and debating. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an experience that I'm privileged as a parent, as a mother in particular, to, to witness and watch. And I know that millions and millions of parents today in Afghanistan, particularly with girls Zara's age, are not able to provide that right. opportunity for their girls. And what are you hearing from people back home about how girls there are still trying to continue their education despite the new rules? How are they doing that? You know, and it's really a case-by-case -case basis. Parents who were educated or who are educated and still remain, they're trying their best to get the books and mm -hmm. continue on homeschooling. Some areas in the northern part of Afghanistan, there are about six or seven provinces. Nobody really exactly knows which provinces exactly, but what we're hearing is that schools have continued for girls up until 12th grade in those provinces. I've had families contact me and asking whether these families should consider sending their girls to Pakistan across the border to complete their schooling. Now, what are the implications of going and starting a new system and then completing it? Right. And even when it's completed, the credentials or the, the you know, the, the, the diploma that these right. girls may not might, transfer. May not transfer. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a lot of logistical problems. And then ultimately the question comes to if the Ministry of Education of Afghanistan does not recognize the forms of education we are providing to girls through all these alternative uh, pathways, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What can the girls then do with that knowledge other than use it to their best advantage, but without any official paperwork to... Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you, as someone who, who was a leader in Afghanistan, in making sure that girls and women received an education there, what is it like for you personally to picture all of these efforts, these lengths that these girls have to go to, to continue learning? I mean, it, it breaks my heart as a leader, as a woman, as a mother, because I don't know if you remember, Elsa, but I myself was stopped from going to school in grade three when I was a refugee living in Pakistan, an Afghan refugee living in Pakistan. And one of the reasons my, why my parents made the decision to come all the way to America uh, back in 1988 was to be able to enable their five daughters, or you know, at that time, uh, four daughters when we came to America, to continue school. And so, of course, this is very personal and, and, and a, a very emotional issue to me. I'm not surprised that in the areas where girls' education has continued today, in spite of the Taliban wanting to stop it, the regions that, that continue to provide education to girls are the regions that were the most served and the most invested in. Yeah. And so that fact needs to be considered when we're making policies and programs because areas that do receive attention and consistent service, yeah. those are the areas that flourish. And now we're seeing yeah. the results yeah. of that. You know, the last time that 
you and I spoke, you said that when you were younger, when you returned to Afghanistan after finishing college in the U.S., you said that there was this, quote, magnetic force that kept you in Afghanistan longer than you had originally expected. And I'm curious, do you still feel that pull now? Do you think you will ever return to your country? Elsa, I'm ready to return tomorrow hmm. if I can. You know, my my heart, my soul, my mind is all in Afghanistan. Um, I'm physically in America right now, in my adopted mm -hmm. home, and I'm forever grateful to this opportunity. And, you know, Zara, my daughter, is the reason why I'm still here. But yeah. I'm ready to go back tomorrow if I know that my daughter can have an opportunity to grow um, in the manner in which I want her to grow, and that I can also be able to survive. And I'm not, I'm not afraid of death. You know, I've, I've accepted that as part of reality and having lived in Afghanistan for 20 years and the, the risks that we all took on a daily basis, I consider service of my people, of my women, of my girls as an honest spiritual duty where I know that I can be far more beneficial to them when I'm closer to them than when I'm afar but I'm ready to go as soon as the opportunity presents itself. Yeah. Rangina Hamidi was Afghanistan's Minister of Education until last year. She is now a professor of practice at Arizona State University. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me, Elsa. Always great to talk to you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Red Sox and Pittsburgh Pirates play the third and final game of their series tonight. The Sox won the first two games. In the forecast, some nice breezes around today that should stick around tonight. Overnight lows in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, sunny skies, temperatures creeping up to 87 degrees. And then for the weekend, ditto on the sunshine. Bright skies both Saturday and Sunday, still in the 80s. About 85 on Saturday, 83 on Sunday. In the Boston area now, 83 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red's Best with local home delivery and pickup at the Boston Fish Pier. Direct access to fish, shellfish, and sushi from networked fishermen. Redsbest.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. That, Michael, as we understand it, is the Justice Department's position, that they believed they were not being told the truth. And it was more than just an inadvertent slip that they had been trying to work with Trump's team and been given assurances, and those assurances turned out to be false, and that they couldn't let this go on any longer. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The Food and Drug Administration's new strategy for evaluating the next generation of COVID-19 boosters is stirring debate. As NPR's Rob Stein reports, some critics say studies on mice could be misleading. 
The FDA is planning to evaluate the next generation of COVID-19 boosters mainly based on tests on mice instead of people. This is the first time the agency isn't requiring COVID-19 vaccines be tested directly in people. The new strategy is aimed at making boosters that target the Omicron variant available in September for another vaccination campaign ahead of what could be yet another big winter surge. Some outside experts are praising the approach, saying enough is known at this point about the safety of the vaccines and how well they work to rely on mouse studies. Others worry that studies involving mice could be misleading. Rob Stein, NPR News. The Chinese Commerce Ministry is protesting formal trade talks between the U.S. and Taiwan. That announcement comes just days after a U.S. congressional delegation visited the self-ruled island that Beijing claims as its own. As NPR's Emily Fang tells us, the U.S. plans to focus on 11 trade areas with Taiwan, including the agriculture and digital industries. A spokesperson for the Chinese Commerce Ministry said that China will, quote, take all necessary measures to safeguard its sovereignty. China is still holding ongoing military drills around Taiwan. Those drills began after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the self-governed island earlier this month. The negotiations are a further sign of warming relations between the U.S. and Taiwan and a big dig at China. The U.S. trade rep made no mention of tensions between Beijing but said the pact would streamline trade practices and could set up cooperation with Taiwan to combat anti-corruption. Stocks finished higher today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA is providing more details about the newly announced shuttle bus that will connect Government Center in Chinatown during the month-long Orange Line closure. The T says buses will run every 30 minutes in the early morning and evening. Boston City Council President Ed Flynn says he will be out in the neighborhood this weekend to let people know about the shutdown and the alternate service. We need an effective communication plan to outline what these changes are. And again, we only have 24 hours um, to let people know what these changes are. And we need to communicate with residents in English and Cantonese and Mandarin as well. The MBTA will also provide expanded Silver Line service to the area. The T added the new options after Chinatown leaders pushed it to offer more service alternatives. The Orange Line closure is tomorrow night at 9 o'clock. Authorities have recovered the body of a man who jumped from the so-called Jaws Bridge that connects Edgartown and Oak Bluffs on Martha's Vineyard. This morning, a shell fisherman found the body of 21-year-old Tavon Bulgin. He jumped off the bridge into the water Sunday night along with his brother. The body of 26-year-old Tavares Bulgin was recovered Monday. The men were from Jamaica. They were working at a local restaurant on the island. The drought is intensifying in Massachusetts. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce says today's report from the U.S. Drought Monitor shows conditions are worsening statewide. 100% of the state is now experiencing some sort of drought conditions. 39% of us in the extreme category now, 55% classified as severe. The latest update expanding that extreme category into the central part of the state from Route 2 to the New Hampshire border. And we've been seeing the effects, water restrictions, tree damage, some crop damage and losses. City of Boston in a deficit of over 10 inches now, putting us at the fourth driest year ever and the driest summer to date. I wish I could say there's some rain in the forecast. Not much, though. Tuesday brings a threat for numerous storms, but nothing substantial enough to even put a minor dent in the drought. 
The dry conditions have also led to an elevated wildfire risk. More than 1,200 acres across Massachusetts have burned so far this year. In the forecast overnight tonight, partly cloudy skies, temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, sunshine creeping to 87 degrees. And then for the weekend, sunny both Saturday and Sunday. Around 85 on Saturday, 83 on Sunday in, in the Boston area. Now it is 83 degrees at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Across the U.S., more than 50 million children are returning to classrooms. This is the third school year in the shadow of COVID-19. But, of course, a lot has changed since the beginning of the pandemic. NPR's Corey Turner was in Jackson, Mississippi last week for the first day of school, talking with educators and students about how they are feeling as the school year begins. He's here with us now to share what he heard. Hey, Corey. Hey, Mary Louise. All right. So first, why Jackson? Why did you choose there to focus on? Well, because Jackson's one of the earliest districts to go back to school, but also it's struggling with big issues that are going to affect lots of schools this year. Things like staff shortages, learning gaps, uh, crumbling infrastructure, including a really serious local water crisis. And not to mention, you know, just how to help kids and families feel comfortable again with COVID still out there. So last week, producer Jeff Pierre and I went down there and we just hung out for the first week. And what did you hear? What did you see? Well, we shadowed Superintendent Dr. Eric Green as he visited four schools in the first day. He chatted with students, he checked in with teachers, and I asked him, how was he feeling? Anxious, all the minor details, and then all of the big, big visionary things all at the same time. So, gotta eat your Wheaties. At every school, Green made sure to thank not only his teachers, but also cafeteria workers and custodians, because it turns out, Mary Louise, this tight labor market means staff can often find better pay outside of school. Uh, There is some good news here. uh, That is that the state of Mississippi did just pass a pretty big teacher pay raise. Mm. Um, Okay, so let's talk about the actual learning. I have heard anecdotally about a lot of districts struggling to get their students back up to where they should be academically. How is that playing in Jackson? Yeah, well, that is the story in Jackson, too, where both math and reading scores absolutely tanked during the pandemic. Um, Third grade teacher Latasha Bue-Cancer gave her students a writing exercise last week just to see where their skills were. In my 18 years, it is the worst that I've seen. Now, there is good news here too, though. So first of all, Jackson schools started last year carving into student schedules to create dedicated academic intervention time. And new data from last spring suggests that students there really have rebounded. Um, Bue Cancer says she's actually optimistic because she saw her kids on this writing exercise. She saw them trying, you know, sounding out words. And as long as they were working and trying to do it, then that gives me hope that they'll improve because this is just the first week of school. Uh, Corey, meanwhile, how are schools approaching COVID safety? 
for the school year. Well, Jackson stood out last year because it required masks all year and it still allowed some students to work remotely. This year, it's not doing either. Um, instead, schools in Jackson and in lots of different places seem to be shifting their focus from COVID prevention to really addressing its emotional toll. The district has a new social emotional learning program helping kids name and manage their big feelings. I spoke with one elementary counselor who started a grief group last year for students who lost a loved one. I also spoke with 15-year-old Michaela Odie, who lost her mom to COVID and has gotten help at school with her grief. Sometimes I just get a burst of anger and I have to let it out or I just cry. Or sometimes I just don't even want to get up. But then I have to get up. I can't just sleep all day. I got to get up and go. Like, I just got to, I got to do it. You know, Mary Louise, no one thinks this year is going to be easy, but in Jackson, I saw incredible resilience like McKaylin's and a genuine hopefulness for what this year could be. And Pierre's Corey Turner telling us about the first day of school in Jackson, Mississippi. Thank you, Corey. You're welcome. A new NPR Ipsos poll shows that misleading and false claims about immigration are widespread and their reach may be growing. Our poll finds that large numbers of Americans hold a range of misconceptions about immigrants, from how likely they are to use public benefits to their role in smuggling illegal drugs into the U.S. NPR's Joel Rose reports. Let's start with a quiz. True or false? Most of the opioid fentanyl that's entering the U.S. is smuggled in by unauthorized migrants crossing the border illegally. That's one of the questions we asked in this poll, because fentanyl seizures are up, and it's become a big election year talking point for Republicans. You have people coming across illegally from countries all over the world. And so what has that gotten us? We now in this country have the leading cause of death for people 18 to 45 is fentanyl overdose. Notice how Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida jumps quickly from the record number of migrant arrests at the southern border to fentanyl overdose deaths. But experts say that's not an accurate picture. My name is Victor M. Manjares, Jr. I am the uh, director for the uh, Center for Law and Human Behavior at the University of Texas, El Paso. Victor Manjares served in the Border Patrol for more than 20 years, retiring as the sector chief in Tucson. Manjares says it's true that fentanyl is crossing the border, a lot of fentanyl. But it's not coming over on the backs of migrants, who are often turning themselves in to seek asylum. Our probability they're going to carry some kind of illicit narcotic is probably close to zero. Manjares says some fentanyl is brought in by cartels who are using migrants as a distraction. But the vast majority is smuggled through official ports of entry, hidden in cars and tractor trailers. When you look at the chaos and clutter that occurs at a port of entry, just with legitimate traffic, you know, trucks and personal vehicles. And so if you're looking at a couple of pounds of fentanyl hidden in, in that chaos, you know, if you're the bad guy, you, you kind of like your odds. So the correct answer to our question is false. Most of the fentanyl entering the country is not smuggled in by migrants. But if you got it wrong, you're in good company. In our poll, six out of 10 Republicans did too. The latest NPR Ipsos poll shows that misleading and false claims about immigration are making deep inroads with the American public. And not just about fentanyl. More than half of Republicans say incorrectly that immigrants are more likely to use public benefits than the native-born population, even though many immigrants don't actually qualify for most federal benefits. And large numbers of poll respondents say immigrants are more likely to commit crimes, even though studies have shown repeatedly that they're not. Once it gets out there, 
it's hard to correct, which means we have to deal with the consequences. Sophia Jordan-Wallace teaches political science at the University of Washington, where she studied false and misleading claims about immigration. There's a pretty long history of using different stereotypes and different negative framing of immigrants that have sometimes distorted facts intentionally. Wallace says there's a tradition in American politics of blaming immigrants for real problems the country is facing as a way to mobilize voters. Regardless of whether there actually is an empirical connection between immigration and immigrants and those problems. Our poll suggests that the reach of some false and misleading claims may be growing. Four years ago, we asked if, quote, immigrants are more likely to commit crimes or be incarcerated than the U.S.-born population. Back then, more than 60 percent of respondents correctly identified that statement as false. But when we asked again this year, less than half got it right. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. It's been a hot, dry summer for much of Europe. The water level on the Rhine River, Western Europe's most important waterway, is at a record low, too shallow for many ships to pass. This is a big problem for Germany, which depends on the river for 80% of its water freight. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports. Dear guests, welcome you on board our cruise boat Deutsches Egg. As Captain Stefan Merkelbach navigates his tour boat down the Rhine River through the town of Koblenz, passengers take pictures of the medieval castles and fortresses along the banks. But he's got his eye on the depth gauge, which hovers at around five feet deep. We can still sail from Koblenz, but we've got several moorings we can no longer stop at because the water is too shallow. Typically, this stretch of the river is 10 to 20 feet deep. It's less of a problem for us pleasure cruises, but freight ships and tankers are having problems. Ships that usually take 2,400 metric tons of freight are now taking only a fifth of that so they don't run aground. That's a massive reduction in load. And for this stretch of the river, that means more ships carrying fewer goods, drifting by a rapidly receding shore of brown rocks topped by dead grass and withering trees. So different things are are being shipped on the Rhine, uh, minerals and steel and oil and gas. Adrian Schmidt-Breton is a scientist at the Commission for the Protection of the Rhine. His commission estimates that this year's low water levels happen on average once every 20 years. The problem is, the last time this happened was just four years ago. In 2018, at the biggest low-flow event prior to this year, the German industry lost about 2.5 billion euro. This year, companies are scrambling to carry freight aboard trucks instead, but it's not enough. One barge of grain, for example, takes 40 trucks to carry. Researcher Guido Baldi at the German Institute for Economic Research says the flow of one of the most vital commodities, coal, is in jeopardy, and that could have severe consequences for Europe's biggest economy. 
If there are problems transporting coal on the Rhine, we'll see shortages at coal-fired power plants in September, and they may not be able to generate electricity. Baldi estimates this will lead to Germany's economic output falling half a percent in the third quarter. This is particularly problematic now, as Germany attempts to wean itself off Russian gas and needs coal plants as a backup. If the transport of coal is hindered, we'll see electricity shortages starting in September. Baldi says drought, war, and supply chain bottlenecks are sending Europe's biggest economy into a nosedive towards recession. Back on the Rhine, scientist Schmidt Breton says the environmental impact of this drought is equally bad. He says less water and warmer water is trouble for fish like Atlantic salmon, which were just reintroduced to the river. But because of low water, they cannot reach their spawning sites, so they have uh, they have to do emergency spawning. That means they, they lo lose their eggs, let's say. And with less water in the river, the concentration of pollutants rises, he says, which will have an additional impact on every animal that lives along the river. Schmidt Breton is encouraged by rain in the forecast this week, but he says the region will need two to three weeks of heavy, steady rain for the Rhine to return to normal. Not likely, as this region heads into what is typically its driest season. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Koblenz. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, scientists have figured out why it's so hard to come up with repellents for mosquitoes. Also, critic Bob Mondello with a documentary double feature, first three minutes, what can come from a brief Polish pre-Holocaust home movie, and the territory looks at indigenous efforts to halt the burning of the Amazon rainforests. If the Red Sox pull out a win tonight in Pittsburgh, they'll have swept the series with the Pirates and clinched their sixth sweep of the season. Tonight's game starts at 7.05 with Josh Winkowski throwing for the Sox against J.T. Brubaker. Clouds and sunshine to wrap up the day and nice breeze around today. Partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, lows in the mid-60s. Then make way for sunshine tomorrow, warmer temperatures as well, up around 87. Saturday and Sunday, sunny yet again in the mid-80s on Saturday, a few degrees cooler on Sunday, but still in the 80s. In the Boston area right now, 81 degrees at 449. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, Informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. And the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. I'm Christopher Leighton. Next time on Open Source, Orwell's Roses. You know the George Orwell of 1984, and you probably know what he loathed. Empire, totalitarianism, corrupted language. But what did he love? Rebecca Solnit reminds us that Orwell was a gardener, alive to nature, and the simple pleasures of English life. Beyond Dystopia next on Open Source. Tonight at 9, Sunday at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. Have you ever wondered how mosquitoes are so good at finding us? I definitely have. NPR's Ari Daniel reports it may come down to the mosquitoes' surprisingly complex sense of smell. 
Meg Younger opens an incubator. Cubes stretched with mesh sit on the shelves, each filled with a hundred plus mosquitoes. I showed this to a friend the other day. She said it reminded her of like a mosquito hotel. Younger is the hotel manager and a neuroscientist at Boston University. She exhales gently into one of the cubes, a waft of carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. And they started moving around quite a bit. Yep. And now in this state, they're sensitized to look for other cues like odor. Specifically, the blend of human body odor, an aroma that, to many mosquitoes, is magnetic. It's an attraction that can be a major health problem. The ones that prefer humans tend to be the ones that transmit diseases among humans. Scientists have attempted to break this attraction, but try as they might, the little mosquito has resisted. They're really good at what they do. Which means, Younger says, it's been frustratingly hard to find chemical means of battling mosquitoes. If we were able to learn how mosquitoes are finding people, the more potential starting points we'll have to develop these new repellents or, conversely, attractants for traps. In her office, Younger tells me how she and her colleagues have taken steps to do just that, by peering into the mosquito's brain to decipher how it smells its surroundings. Most of what we know about the neuroscience of smell comes from mice and fruit flies, where the wiring's fairly simple. Each neuron in the nose or antenna has one kind of receptor that detects a single kind of odor. Like the banana odor. And all the neurons with receptors for the banana smell connect to the same part of the brain. This mechanism of one kind of receptor per neuron has been the party line for how smell generally works. Until Younger and the others started poking around inside mosquito brains, where they found that each neuron has multiple receptors that can detect multiple odors. And <laughs> I was like, this is weird. And I just thought, oh, weird is good. Because it's fun to study something that's new and different, and it's fun to be surprised. This finding that a mosquito's sense of smell is organized differently than expected is published in today's edition of the journal Cell. Younger thinks it's this built-in redundancy that might make the mosquito's ability to sniff people out so tamper-proof. So that if they don't have a receptor for one of the compounds found in human odor, they'd still know a human is nearby. Because they have all these backup receptors in each neuron, which would then activate. Back in her lab, Younger stares at the mosquitoes inside that hotel and says she can't help but marvel at the complexity tucked into a brain less than a millimeter across. You know, nervous systems are so powerful that even one that's so small allows for so much. Ari Daniel, NPR News. From mosquitoes to movies, summer blockbuster season is winding down, which makes room for smaller films like documentaries, The Territory, which treks through the Amazon rainforest, and Three Minutes a Lengthening, which is, says critic Bob Mondello, exactly what the title promises. People are milling in a public square in three minutes a lengthening, children laughing as they crowd toward the cameraman. Then, as the camera turns, scooting across cobblestones to stay in the frame, a boy in a cap playfully pretending to strangle a little girl, families emerging from a synagogue. These three minutes of life were taken out of the flow of time by David Kurtz in 1938. His grandson, Glenn Kurtz, discovered them in 2009 in a closet in Palm Beach Garden. 
Florida. No markings, nothing to indicate where the footage was shot. I asked my father and my aunt, and they both said that they thought it was my grandmother's hometown called Berezna. It was on the Polish-Ukrainian border. It took Kurtz about six months to discover that it was not that town, but rather his grandfather's birthplace. Nashelsk, 30 miles north of Warsaw. The town had 7,000 inhabitants in 1938, of whom 3,000 were Jewish. Fewer than 100 of them survived the Holocaust. As the shots were clearly from the Jewish quarter, Kurtz donated the film to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, which had it digitized and put on its website. And as Kurtz searched for clues to the identities of the people on screen, deciphering grocery store signs, hints from clothing, he was contacted by a woman who recognized her grandfather, Morris Chandler, in an apple-cheeked lad of 13. And he recognized others. This kid I know, his name was Talmud. Director Bianca Steiger never reaches outside the original footage in what becomes a fascinating and exhaustive but never exhausting exercise in cinematic forensics. She fragments and replays moments, zooming in to examine faces or to highlight interactions, and in the process, three minutes of lengthening becomes a detective story. How much can you learn from images? Time of day, social class, sure, but state of mind? That smile, I don't know what... What was I? He must have been happy or something. So somebody told me, what, a couple of years later, what I was going to have to do. I wouldn't believe it, probably. A narrative of discovery, an exploration of memory, a meditation on loss and on cinema, all in a lengthening of three minutes. <laughs> It may not seem likely, but there are eerie echoes of all of that in The Territory, about an indigenous community's struggle to protect what director Alex Pritz calls an island of rainforest surrounded by farms. In the 1980s, reads an opening title, the Brazilian government first contacted the Iruwawau people. From a population of thousands, fewer than 200 remain. Bitate, a clear-eyed teen activist, is among them, working to combat a national government that seems hell-bent on destroying his home. In the run-up to elections in 2018, Bitate watches a campaign speech on his telephone. There won't be one more inch of indigenous reserve, rails soon-to-be president Jair Bolsonaro. Bitate asks his grandfather, do you ever worry about our people disappearing? His grandfather replies, it's up to the next generation now. Bitate is that next generation, but so are others. The film introduces Sergio, a 49-year-old farm worker who spent his life laboring on other people's lands and has dreams of owning his own farm here. Then there's Martins, who's chopping down trees, all but daring the police to stop him. Director Pritz finds haunting moments in this ongoing environmental tragedy, pulling the camera's focus back from farmers spraying pesticides to a butterfly on a leaf, or following Bitate as he and his fellow activists capture criminal activities the authorities want to ignore, indigenous environmental warriors protecting their territory armed with bows and arrows and video drones, reminding you, as does Three Minutes a Lengthening, not just how loss and remembrance work, but how cinema can shape them. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from Angie, formerly Angie's List, dedicated to helping homeowners tackle home projects from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect with strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft. Used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. From Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at AthenaHealth.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR. Sunshine and clouds to wrap up the afternoon. Partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-60s should be breezy tonight, too. And then for tomorrow, warmer temperatures up around 87 degrees. Lots of sunshine. Saturday and Sunday, sunshine again in the mid to low 80s over the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR. Red Sox play the third and final game of their series in Pittsburgh tonight, 7.05 start time. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Twilight, Los Angeles, 1992, at the ART. Anna DeVere Smith's award-winning play about the L.A. riots. Learn more at amrep.org. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The former chief financial officer for the Trump Organization has pleaded guilty for his role in a tax fraud scheme that lasted 15 years. And he struck a deal with prosecutors that could make him a star witness against the company at a trial this fall. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, August 18th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins also ahead. Massachusetts adopts a strategy to stretch the limited number of doses of the monkeypox vaccine. Use only one-fifth of the recommended vaccine dose. I think it's the right direction. I think it will change and hopefully curb the, the spread of the disease. We'll also hear from local health experts on whether they think the U.S. can get monkeypox under control. And a handful of journalists is trying to keep press freedom alive in Hong Kong. These stories and the forecast are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. Former President Donald Trump's longest-serving business executive, Alan Weisselberg, has pleaded guilty to 15 felonies for defrauding taxpayers by hiding income. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has more. New York Judge Juan Mershon began by asking, did he, Alan Weisselberg, from 2005 to June 30th, 2021, together with others at the Trump Organization, engage in a scheme to defraud, to underreport his income to tax authorities? Yes, Your Honor, Weisselberg said 15 times in New York criminal court. Weisselberg, who served for decades as Trump's chief financial officer, will have to pay nearly $2 million in taxes, interest, and penalties and agree to a jail term of five months. Most significantly for Donald Trump, Weisselberg has agreed to testify truthfully at a trial of Trump's business for the same scheme, scheduled for October. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. 
The U.S. has more cases of monkeypox than any other country in the world, more than 13,000 and counting. As NPR's Ping Huang reports, the White House is boosting its efforts to get vaccines to vulnerable groups. The White House is launching a program to bring monkeypox vaccines to pride festivals and other events where they can reach the gay, bisexual, and queer communities at highest risk for getting the virus. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, head of the CDC, says states will be able to order additional doses of vaccine to give out at select events. While we are offering the vaccine at these events to those at high risk, this is a two-dose vaccine series, and receiving the vaccine at these events will not provide protection at the event itself. A second dose of the vaccine is needed about a month later. Full protection kicks in around two weeks after the second dose. Ping Huang, NPR News. Weekly applications for unemployment benefits suggest the U.S. job market is still tight. NPR's Scott Horsley has more. The Labor Department says fewer people filed new claims for unemployment benefits last week. Claims have been hovering around the 250,000 mark, which is low by historical standards. That suggests employers are reluctant to lay workers off at a time when there are far more vacant jobs than unemployed workers to fill them. Minutes from the latest Federal Reserve meeting show staffers at the central bank lowered their forecast for inflation slightly between June and July. Prices are still climbing faster than the central bank would like, however. The Fed's expected to raise interest rates again at its next meeting in September in an effort to curb inflation, although betting markets now point to a somewhat smaller rate hike than policymakers ordered last month. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Wall Street higher by the closing bell, the Dow gaining 18 points to end the day at 33,999. NASDAQ up 27, the S&P 500 up 9. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Boston city officials say they'll have multiple strategies in place to try to help people get around when the MBTA's orange line and parts of the green line close for maintenance later on. Mayor Michelle Wu said today the city will have dedicated lanes for MBTA shuttle buses, parking restrictions and street closures to try to help the shuttles get through. The T has also announced it will run twice-per-hour buses from Government Center, Chinatown, and Tufts Medical Center during the early morning and evenings during the month-long Orange Line closure. Chinatown was originally left out of the T's shuttle busing plan. The Orange Line closes tomorrow night at 9 p.m. The Green Line closes Monday for four weeks between Government Center and Union Square in Somerville. A national scarcity of buses is one reason the MBTA moved as quickly as it did to shut down the Orange Line, according to General Manager Steve Poftak. He says the T was racing against other parties to secure the close to 200 shuttles it needs to replace train service. To get this number of buses is requiring us to essentially get every available accessible bus east of the Mississippi. We have drivers who are coming in uh, from out of town and are being put up in hotels. Poftak says if the T had delayed repairs to the Orange Line any further, it would have taken months to score buses. Crews are working to contain several wildfires in Massachusetts amid very dry conditions that have elevated the fire danger. The Lynn Woods Reservation is closed until further notice as multiple fires burn the 2,000-acre municipal park. The Breakheart State Reservation in Saugus was closed about 4 this afternoon because of multiple fires in that park that have been burning since Tuesday. It's the third day in a row the park has been closed at least part of the day. And the National Guard troops are activated to help fire crews in Rockport, a 19-acre brush fire 
wildfire has been burning there for about a month. Some 800 wildfires have ignited in Massachusetts so far this year. And employees at Medford City Hall are alleging the building is infested with rats and contaminated with black mold, and they say it's affecting their ability to work safely. A group of city workers filed a complaint with the Mass Department of Labor Standards this week. A spokesperson says Medford's mayor, four Medford's mayor, say they recognize the seriousness of the issue and are hiring an exterminator and mold remediation company. Partly cloudy tonight, lows in the mid-60s. Then clouds should make an exit for the weekend, making way for sunshine tomorrow. Warmer temperatures, too, up around 87 degrees. Saturday and Sunday, sunny skies yet again in the mid-80s. Saturday, a few degrees cooler on Sunday, but still in the 80s. 81 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments is a fiduciary, which means they always put clients' interests first. Fisher Investments, clearly different money management. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. In criminal court in Manhattan today, an executive who has worked for Donald Trump for decades pleaded guilty to a raft of felony financial crimes. Alan Weisselberg will be sentenced to five months in prison and five years probation, this in exchange for testifying against his own employer, the Trump Organization. NPR's Ilya Meritz was in court this morning. He's here now. Hey there. Good to be here. Okay, so this was a long time coming. Set the scene for us at the courthouse this morning. So Alan Weisselberg arrived in court about 25 minutes early, flanked by his lawyers. He wore a face mask, so it was hard to read any expression. Anyone who watches a show like Law & Order would recognize this courthouse. Dimly lit, marble-lined corridors, all kinds of criminal defendants pass through in the course of of a day. And for nearly one hour, the judge in this case, Juan Mershon, reviewed the elements of the case, reminded Weisselberg of his rights, and then had him plead guilty to all 15 counts against him, including conspiracy, grand larceny, and falsifying business records. We heard a lot of, yes, your honor, yes, your honor, as Weisselberg affirmed the individual facts of his crimes. um, So 15 counts, and these were for crimes that went on for a long time, for years. Yes, 16 years, from the early seasons of The Apprentice to Trump's time in the White House to even his post-presidency. This was a scheme by Weisselberg and allegedly his employer, the Trump Organization, to evade taxes by hiding compensation through undeclared benefits like car leases and private school tuition in exchange for admitting those crimes and paying almost $2 million in back taxes and penalties Weisselberg has this plea agreement, so he will testify against the Trump Organization when it goes to trial later this year, and if he does so truthfully, he will be sentenced to relatively little jail time. It may actually be reduced to about 100 nights in prison. Okay, so Weisselberg pleads guilty. That resolves his own legal jeopardy. What does it mean for the Trump Organization? It's going to make it much harder for the Trump Organization to defend itself if and when it goes on trial as is scheduled this fall. Ellen Weiselberg has now admitted to crimes, and so that's official. These crimes happened. The question is whether the Trump Organization participated in them. Prosecutors have mountains of documents, and it's easy to imagine them showing spreadsheets or pay stubs to the jury and asking Ellen Weiselberg to decode whatever crime it is that they may show. If the Trump Organization is convicted it will then become a felon in the eyes of the law. And that could scare off some business partners and it could come with stiff penalties. Um, And for Weisselberg, so he's admitted to crimes. Got it. Is he fully cooperating at this point? 
not in the way that investigators originally had hoped. For months, they'd been trying to get him to flip and really show them the goods, be their guide as they investigate Trump finances. That didn't happen. But the plea agreement does spell out some very specific ways that Weisselberg will have to help the prosecutors. That's mainly testifying truthfully at trial about those crimes and the Trump organization's role in them as they were spelled out in court today. What about former President Trump himself? He has not been charged by the Manhattan DA. What's it mean for him? Trump's name came up twice in today's hearing, both times in connection with a ledger of his expenses. And for me, that really underlined the great tension running through the district attorney's case here. We already know from the indictment that Donald Trump allegedly personally paid private school tuition for Alan Weisselberg's family members out of, out of his own bank account. And we know that he personally benefited from this scheme to avoid taxes, and that's because he owns the Trump Organization. And these crimes resulted in the company paying less in taxes. And yet he has not been charged. And a grand jury that was examining his role in all of this was allowed to lapse this spring. If Donald Trump avoids consequences here, that would fit a pattern that we've already seen. The people around Trump do often get held accountable. He does not. Yeah, I'm thinking of the long list of people around Trump who have been accused of crimes. Many of them have been convicted. Uh, Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, the list goes on. What, what sets Alan Weisselberg in today's developments apart? It's the length of his relationship. Alan Weisselberg worked for Trump, the Trump Organization for almost 50 years. He was hired by Donald Trump's dad, Fred Trump, and he rose through the company as Donald Trump reshaped the company in his image around luxury hotels and casinos and golf clubs. As a result, Alan Weisselberg is intimately familiar with the Trump family finances. No one knows Trump money better than him, maybe not even Trump. But this is a man who turned 75 this month. He has a grandfather. He clearly wanted to stay loyal. He could have flipped, and he didn't. But when he looked at his chances with a jury, he decided that taking a plea was in his interests. Some of the charges, if he were convicted, could have spelled years in prison. And Pierre's Ilya Merits, thanks. You're welcome. It's been one year since a deadly flood tore through the small town of Waverly, Tennessee, and it killed 20 people. There's been a lot of effort to rebuild, but many are still a long way from a full recovery. As Damon Mitchell with member station WPLN reports, it is still unclear if the town will ever be the same. Last August, the water got so deep that it trapped the families and forced others to their rooftops. Looking out a foggy window... Linda Allman recorded a glimpse of the flood on social media as the brown water carried debris past her home. Well, if anybody's seen me on Facebook Live, we're being flooded right now in Waverly, Tennessee. Really scary. Those will be among Allman's last words. The water took her life that morning. A flash flood watch had been issued the evening before, but almost no one was prepared for a historic rainfall. It overflowed the local creek that runs through Waverly. And by 8 a.m. that next morning, Linda Bothrop was also trapped by the flood and recorded video as floodwaters poured into her home. It came fast in a flash. <laughs> the sound of helicopter blades filled the air while rescue boats cruised on the floodwaters below. Bothrop, who's in her mid-70s, survived the flood with her husband. But like many others, the experience was enough for them to count their losses and leave Waverly. 
They moved closer to their daughter and grandchildren in Mississippi. Coming back to Waverly and seeing it, I kind of admire the people that have stuck around because it's really depressing here. It really is. They'd been in their old home nearly 50 years, but now she's ready to put those memories behind her. If I were here, it wouldn't be as easy to do that because it's, it's all around us, you know, all this destruction. But I think we're, we're better off in where we are now. Bothrop lived just a short walk north of the creek. She says she had the highest house in the neighborhood and wasn't considered part of the floodplain. But even her home wasn't safe when 21 inches fell in a single day. Floodwaters damaged dozens of businesses and destroyed most of Waverly's public housing units. Buddy Fraser grew up in Waverly and is now mayor of the town. But the place he knew before the flood could be slipping away as people like Linda Bothrop and the family he rented a house to have left. They all survived, but then they had to relocate. So we lost a, we lost a good family. That's, that's another one of the casualties is what it is. With fewer people in town, Waverly could see a loss in sales and property tax revenue. Frazier says it'll take many years to get Waverly back on its feet. As that happens, federal agencies are conducting flood studies to prevent something like this from happening again. Events like this will be increasingly likely, scientists say, because climate change is leading to heavier rainfalls. One of these studies will take will take 18 months. So, you know, we've got to we've got to be patient while that's going on. For those who decided to stick around, like Gary Jackson, the destruction has been hard to shake. Sometimes it's waking up in the middle of the night because you're having a bad dream. Jackson moved to Waverly in 2017. He says his mind replaced the moment his dog was sucked underneath the raging water. Sometimes it's just not been able to sleep at all because you're just overthinking about what happened and what you could have done differently or, you know, um, just worrying about what's going to happen in the future. You know? Jackson's house is one of more than a dozen being rebuilt by a volunteer group. It represents a bit of progress since the first days after the flood when roads had washed away and cars were stuck in trees. Why come back even after like losing a home and just all this traumatic <sighs> stuff that happened? It's gonna sound so cheesy. I always wanted to own a house and I never thought I was gonna be able to because I've been disabled for a very long time and I, we were able to get this house and I just didn't, I just couldn't bring myself to give it up. Jackson has type one diabetes, which caused him to lose a leg. He's been staying outside of Waverly and is now getting ready to move back. But the damage is still hard to miss. The flooded elementary and middle schools are still vacant. Kids were supposed to start school in a remodeled boot factory, but there have been construction delays. Looking down his block is heartbreaking. That house is empty. They're all empty until you get to the other end of the street, and most of those are gone. Debbie's gone, and... Um, I forget his name, he's gone right now. Um, don't know if they're coming back or not, I haven't talked to him. But it's just lonely, it just looks lonely. Waverly has a history of flooding. No one knows when another deadly flood could come through or if the town will ever fully recover. Jackson says he just hopes that things can get back to the way they were. For NPR News, I'm Damon Mitchell in Nashville.
August 1947, British colonial India is partitioned into newly independent India and Pakistan. That freedom began with chaos and bloodshed. Millions were displaced along religious lines. About one million people died in the violence. And today, India and Pakistan are still grappling with the repercussions. 75 years after partition, efforts to heal old wounds. That's on today's episode of our daily news podcast. Consider this. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up on All Things Considered, what to do when the demand for monkeypox vaccines is greater than the supply? The policy Massachusetts health officials are adopting coming up. On Wall Street, the Dow ended the day a hair higher, up 19 points. It closed at 33,999. S&P and Nasdaq both closed about a fifth of a percent higher. The S&P settled at 42.84. The Nasdaq closed at 12,965. All the details coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in Research, Manufacturing, and Development at VRTX.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. Sunshine's poke through for the end of the day. Should have partly cloudy skies overnight tonight. A breeze around still. Tonight's lows in the mid-60s. And then for tomorrow, sunny skies warming up to about 87 degrees. Coming to City Space Thursday, August 25th, one week from tonight, a live concert featuring Van Buren Records, an innovative hip-hop collection from Brockton. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. If the Red Sox pull out a win tonight in Pittsburgh, they'll have swept the series with the Pirates and clinched their sixth sweep of the season. Tonight's game starts at 7.05 with Josh Winkowski throwing for the Sox against J.T. Brubaker. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help people simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at AmazonBusiness.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. More than 200 people in Massachusetts have contracted monkeypox, and the number grows each week. So there is more demand for the monkeypox vaccine, but the supply is falling short. Now the state says it will adopt a new strategy to get more people vaccinated. WBR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey joins me now to explain what the strategy is and why doctors are still hopeful the outbreak can be contained. Hi, Priyanka. Hey, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So what's the state's plan? Well, last week, federal officials cleared the way for healthcare providers to use smaller doses to vaccinate people. And now Massachusetts is adopting the same policy. That means the supply of vaccine can now help protect five times as many people. Here's Gabriela Andujar Vasquez. She's an infectious disease doctor and epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center. I think it's the right direction. I think it will change and hopefully occur the the spread of the disease. 
Priyanka, will the smaller doses, though, still provide the same level of protection against the illness? Because it's only one-fifth of the normal dose. Yes, and that's according to the FDA. It says a 2015 study showed that people who receive a one-fifth dose produce a similar immune response to people who receive the larger dose. Now, the smaller doses do need to be administered in a different way, and the shots tend to cause more redness and swelling, but the FDA says those side effects are manageable. Public health officials are asking people to watch for signs of monkeypox. Would you remind us what they are and who is considered at risk? So the symptoms include things like painful or itchy rash and flu-like symptoms. And you can get a test from your doctor if you have those symptoms. People at risk include anyone exposed to the virus and people who might have been exposed. For example, because they had multiple sexual partners in places the virus is known to be spreading. Monkeypox is not a sexually transmitted disease, but it appears to be spreading mostly during intimate skin-to-skin contact. And so far in the U.S., it's mostly among men who have sex with men. A lot of people seem to understand these risks, and they're trying to get vaccinated. But as we've noted, there's more demand for vaccine than there is supply. Priyanka, the outbreak has been growing for months now. Is it possible to get monkeypox under control? Lisa, the doctors I spoke with said yes, it is still possible if we work quickly to vaccinate more people and do more outreach to communities that may face barriers to getting vaccinated. Dr. Cassandra Pierre is an epidemiologist and infectious disease expert at Boston Medical Center. She says we also need better data. I am hopeful that we will be able to curtail this maybe in the next few months to year, but there are a lot of gaps. We have a lot of blind spots. I also spoke with Dr. Andrew Jorgensen from Outer Cape Health Services in Provincetown. They're seeing a dip in monkeypox cases there. Most of the local population at risk has been vaccinated, so it'll probably become sort of a a non-story here on the Cape once we get through the next few weeks. So he's pretty optimistic. Which is certainly good to hear. More broadly, though, monkeypox has been spreading quickly. Vaccines, as we said, are in short supply which sounds a lot like the early days of COVID. Is this COVID all over again? There are some parallels, it's true, but these are really different diseases. COVID spreads through the air, but that's not as typical for monkeypox. It usually spreads through direct contact with the skin or clothing or bedding of an infected person. And deaths from monkeypox have been very rare, just about a dozen worldwide. But Lisa, it's important to remember that this public health crisis is coming on top of COVID, which is still with us. So it's another burden for our healthcare system, which is still stressed from the pandemic. That is WBR health reporter Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Press freedom in Hong Kong has taken a nosedive as Beijing tightens its control over the city. Editors have been arrested, reporters have lost jobs, and some have simply called it quits. But as NPR's John Ruich reports, a handful have chosen something different. In 2018, Lam Yinpong left his job at a big TV station and went to work for a little-known online news outlet called Stand News. It had a handful of employees and a lot of potential, but zero influence. Soon, everything would change. Huge and at times violent protests against the government shook Hong Kong in 2019, and Stand News became a go-to source for frontline information and live-streamed videos. 
The government soon hit back, emboldened by a 2020 national security law. It arrested opposition politicians and protesters and turned against some of the most outspoken news outlets, like the newspaper Apple Daily and Stand News. I remember the night Stand News was closed. I go home and I tell my wife, that, oh, I guess my path as a journalist has come to an end. Lam thought about becoming an Uber driver or a food delivery guy, but then... After quite a while, maybe a month or a few weeks, I find a very strange situation on, on the internet in Hong Kong is that suddenly all the news are gone. So I decided to set up my own news platform. I want to try one more time. The platform is called ReNews, and it's small. It's one man sitting at a laptop in a tiny office. The thing is, though, Lam is not alone. A handful of small, independent online news outlets have popped up in Hong Kong in recent months. Ronson Chan also works at one of them. It's called Channel C. We cannot make news just like before, but there were still about 7 million people in Hong Kong. They still need news, they still need facts, need truth. Chan says there's no way around self-censorship in today's Hong Kong. Both Channel C and La Minpong's ReNews avoid sensitive political topics like elections. But they think there are still plenty of stories to be uncovered that can help make the city better. For example, one of Channel C's most popular stories was this one. A few months ago, they live-streamed a report about an apartment that was supposedly infested with rats. And nobody likes rats. It attracted 10,000 people to watch, including my mother-in-law. The video and a follow-up have since had more than 400,000 clicks. Rats may sound parochial compared with heady issues like democracy, but living conditions are a perennially hot topic in Hong Kong, where affordable housing can be hard to find. Lam Yinpong's ReNews mostly does local interest stories, too, but he's also posted snippets on somewhat more sensitive issues, like the fate of some of the people who took part in the 2019 protests. If you want to do so-called real journalism, you want to say what you think is right, you have to prepare for those consequences of uh, being arrested, going to jail. And that's a real concern in the current environment. We are, unfortunately, not optimistic. Cedric Alviani is head of the East Asia branch for Reporters Without Borders. The Chinese regime obviously believes that they can do what they want. They can suppress information in Hong Kong, just like they have done in the mainland. He fears more journalists will be arrested in Hong Kong, those already in detention will be sentenced to harsh prison terms, and that these small new media outlets won't last very long. John Ruwich, NPR News, Hong Kong. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, why Cleveland Browns quarterback Deshaun Watson will have to sit out 11 games and pay a $5 million fine. Massachusetts Department of Transportation crews are preparing road markers and new signage in preparation for the major MBTA shutdown that starts tomorrow. The entire Orange Line will be closed for the next month. The MBTA will deploy shuttle buses and expand Silver Line and commuter rail service to help provide alternative transportation. 
State crews will be out tonight and tomorrow to create new signs and pavement marking along Route 16 in Medford and Route 28 in Somerville to design dedicated bus lanes. Additional work will take place along the Gilmore Bridge in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530. I'm Christopher Leighton. Next time on Open Source, Orwell's Roses. You know the George Orwell of 1984, and you probably know what he loathed. Empire, totalitarianism, corrupted language. But what did he love? Rebecca Solnit reminds us that Orwell was a gardener, alive to nature, and the simple pleasures of English life. Beyond Dystopia next on Open Source. Tonight at 9, Sunday at 2, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House is stepping up efforts to get monkeypox vaccines to vulnerable groups. The U.S. now has more than 13,000 cases of monkeypox. That's more than any other country in the world. The Biden administration is launching a program to bring vaccines to pride festivals and any other event they can reach the gay, bisexual, and queer communities at highest risk of contracting the virus. Dr. Rochelle Walensky is head of the CDC. To be clear, we're learning how well these vaccines work against monkeypox and in this specific outbreak. Although we anticipate vaccines will provide protection, temporarily reducing or avoiding behaviors that increase your risk of monkeypox exposure is important, especially between your first and second doses of vaccine. Walensky says the U.S. is setting aside 50,000 doses of monkeypox vaccine. She says states and cities will be able to order additional doses based on the risk population. It's back to school season here in the U.S. with more than 50 million children beginning to return to classrooms. NPR's Corey Turner reports from one of the earliest school districts to return in Jackson, Mississippi. Classes in Jackson started last week. Gotta eat your Wheaties. <laughs> Superintendent Eric Green visited four schools on day one, greeting students, teachers, and staff. Thank you. Right, yeah, no they've problem. been talking about, they've been raving about you. So it's a pleasure to meet you. The new year here looked much like it will in lots of places. Children and families seem genuinely happy to be back. Masks are no longer required. Federal relief dollars are hard at work, helping pay for everything from student supports to new air conditioning. And while remote learning sent test scores plummeting, new data suggests students here made up a lot of ground last year, a trend Jackson hopes to continue this year. Corey Turner, NPR News. Stocks finished slightly higher on Wall Street. The Dow gained 18 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston business leaders say they're concerned that the month-long shutdown of the MBTA's Orange Line will spell trouble for the bottom line. There are some 16,000 businesses within a half mile of the Orange Line. The closure begins tomorrow at 9 p.m. for repairs and safety upgrades. WBUR's Simone Rios has more. Business has only had a couple weeks to prepare for the shutdown. Now many will have to deal with reduced foot traffic, problems getting deliveries, and late-arriving employees. Shigan Idowu, Chief of Economic Opportunity and Inclusion for Boston, says the city will work to help affected businesses. Hundreds of service providers to small businesses that we're going to be working with on a daily basis uh, throughout this month to provide additional resources, whether it's technical assistance, marketing, um, and, and all other types of services uh, to make sure that they survive uh, uh, through this shutdown. The city plans to create exclusive bus lanes on several streets and eliminate parking spaces to make more space for shuttle buses. For 90.9 WBUR, 
I'm Simone Rios. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey has continued his trip through Asia with a stop in Cambodia this week. Markey's office said today that he and other members of Congress met with leaders of the country. They discussed issues including climate change and human rights and visited a World Heritage site. Earlier this week, the group stopped in Taiwan. China has expressed anger at the visit because it claims the self-governing island of Taiwan as its own. And 13 former school students in Peabody are suing the city and a former gym teacher over sex abuse allegations that span three decades. Attorneys say the city failed to prevent and stop the abuse. The lawsuit alleges Jane Tolts sexually abused students at Higgins Middle School and John F. Kennedy Jr. High School between 1969 and 1996. One of the plaintiffs who was identified as John Doe in the case says the abuse he endured still affects him today. I can only hope that my coming forward in the twilight of my life will spare another little boy or girl from a similar fate and eventually help other children to be safe from monsters, monsters like Tolts. Peabody City Solicitor says the city won't comment on the suit because it has not yet been served with the complaint. WBR has been unable to reach Tolts for comment. In the forecast, pretty nice out there right now. Look for partly cloudy skies overnight tonight, still on the breezy side. Temperatures in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, sunshine creeping to 87 degrees. Then for the weekend, ditto on the sunshine. Bright skies both Saturday and Sunday, still in the 80s, about 85 for Saturday, about 83 degrees for Sunday. 79 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. A new NFL season will begin in three weeks without one of the league's best young quarterbacks. The NFL announced today that Deshaun Watson of the Cleveland Browns is suspended for the first 11 games of the regular season and fined $5 million. More than 20 women have accused Watson of sexual assault and misconduct during massage sessions. And the punishment increases Watson's original six-game ban, which the NFL appealed. NPR's Tom Goldman joins me now. Hey, Tom. Hi, Juana. So, Tom, is this a win for the league, given that the NFL was not satisfied with that original six-game suspension? Um, Yes and no. And let's take the no first. Uh, Anytime there's a highly publicized personal conduct case against one of its players, the NFL suffers. And since the infamous Ray Rice case in 2014, when the former running back punched his fiancee, captured on video, the league has has at times bungled its way through these cases. There's often public outrage. There was with Watson, too. The original six-game suspension was criticized for not being enough, especially after the special judge who handed it down, said Watson's behavior was egregious and predatory. Okay, so that's the no, but what about the yes? Why is this a win for the NFL? 
Well, the, the six-game ban grew to 11, uh, even though the NFL wanted a season-long ban. And League Commissioner Roger Goodell says the $5 million fine is significant. Originally, Watson was going to lose 345000 in salary for his suspension without pay. Not much for someone who signed with Cleveland for $230 million mm. guaranteed. But now he'll lose over 600000 in salary and that $5 million fine on top of that. Okay, and so what have we heard from Deshaun Watson about this new development? Well, today he spoke with reporters for about 10 minutes after the sanction was announced. Probably the most significant thing he said is that he still says he did not do what roughly two dozen female massage therapists said he did during his time with the Houston Texans. Here he is. I've always uh, stood on my innocence and always said that I've never assaulted anyone or disrespected anyone, and I'm continuing to stand on that. But at the same time, I have to continue to push forward with my life and my career. Now, last week, Watson publicly apologized, saying he was truly sorry, quote, to all of the women that I have impacted in this situation. He was asked today how he squares that apology with the fact that he says he's innocent. What do you apologize? For everyone that was affected about this situation. There was a lot of people that was triggered. But not the women that accused you of this? I've apologized to all women. Okay, Juana, if you are confused, mm-hmm. others are too. He says he's innocent, but he's sorry. Two Texas grand juries declined to charge him criminally. He did settle civil suits with all but one of his two dozen accusers. Now, Watson says he plans to tell his side of the story in more detail in the future. Okay, and what have you heard from the leadership of the team of the Cleveland Browns? Yeah, Browns owner Jimmy Haslam said the team will honor and respect the punishment, which represents an agreement between the NFL and the Players Union. Haslam added this, and I'm quoting, I think in this country and hopefully in the world, people deserve second chances. That's what we're going to do. He acknowledges some will say, well, you're doing that because Watson is a star quarterback, to which Haslam said, well, of course. (sighs) Okay, so 11 (laughs) games. I am looking at the calendar here. When will Watson make his regular season debut? Uh, His first game back is expected to be on December 4th, ironically against the Houston Texans, the team he played for when the alleged misconduct happened. Wow. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman, thank you. You're welcome. It has been a year since a massive earthquake rocked Haiti. More than 2,000 people were killed, many more were injured, and hundreds of thousands of people needed emergency humanitarian assistance after roads and power and running water after just about everything washed away. Well, two days after the earthquake last August, I spoke with Ronald Jocelyn, the education director for a nonprofit aid organization called Hope for Haiti. And he told me about the devastation that people were facing. They are suffering. They lack everything, like uh, medications, medical supplies, food, and shelters. People got out the street on parks, on, you know, soccer fields, on the streets. That's where they live. That's where they, they, they sleep. Well, a year later, we have called Ronald Jocelyn back to tell us about the situation in Haiti today. One year later, Ronald Jocelyn, I'm glad to speak to you again. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me on the show. So I want people to know that we're talking to you from Lakai. That's um, one of the cities uh, hardest hit by the earthquake a year ago. What is it like there today? There is a lot of change, even though there are things that still need to be done. But buildings are being rebuilt. And actually, this is uh, one thing that Hope for Haiti is helping with, with renovation of homes in you know, places in southern Haiti. So people are trying to rebuild their homes and schools are being rebuilt too. 
hospitals are being rebuilt and uh, people, you know, are hard at work at the moment. And the soccer fields? Are people playing back to playing soccer on them and not sleeping on them? Fortunately, no more people are sleeping there. So it's just need to be renovated so the youngsters, you know, can go back to the field and play and have fun together. Yeah. It sounds like a lot has been done, a lot remains to be done. What are the most pressing priorities now? First of all, let me tell you that in Haiti, for the moment, we are facing a lot of challenges like insecurity, you know, civil unrest, fuel shortages, food shortages. It's really expensive to buy the most essential items that the people need for a living. And we are in need of electricity. For example, in the city of Lekai, we have only two or three hours of electricity every two or three days. So we really are in need of these infrastructures for the people to, to live a decent life in Haiti, particularly in certain part of the country. Well, I was going to ask how even or uneven it is from one part of the country to another. You're in the southern part of the country. You were hit very hard by the earthquake. Um, Different story in Port-au-Prince or in other parts of Haiti? Well, in the southern part of the country, it is the hardest for the people. Because of the gang violence in Port-au-Prince, it's not easy for people to come from Port-au-Prince to Lekais. Mm-hmm. And you need to pay the gang members to be able to pass. But what I want to highlight mm-hmm. is that most of this violence is in Port-au-Prince. Sometimes people tend to compare the whole Haiti with Port-au-Prince. But Haiti is not Port-au-Prince. Port-au-Prince is dressed a city of Haiti. It's it's true that for us here in the United States, uh, many of the headlines that reach us from Haiti are about bad things happening, um, either about violence or about the political chaos or about uh, an earthquake. Um, is there anything you would want people listening to know about Haiti, about your country in this moment? Yes. I want them to know that there is still hope for Haiti. We have great local leaders on the ground who want to do their part. They just need to be empowered. And as you know, uh, sustainable development takes time to happen. It takes efforts and dedication. So we have the people. We want to make the efforts. We just need the resources to make it happen. Ronald Joslan, he's the education director for Hope for Haiti. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me, Marie Louise. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Opponents of the Biden administration's goal to revive the nuclear deal with Iran got an unexpected, if dangerous, boost for their argument recently. The FBI said Iran planned to assassinate former U.S. National Security Advisor John Bolton. This week, a group seeking to oust the Iranian regime hosted an event with Bolton and others as they made their case. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. One of the targets of the alleged assassination plot was John Bolton, who was Trump's national security advisor when the U.S. left the Obama-era nuclear deal. It's delusional to believe that a regime that you're about to enter into a significant arms control agreement with can be depended on to comply with its obligations or is even serious about the negotiation when it's plotting the assassination of 
high-level former government officials and current government officials. Officials who may have been involved in the U.S. drone strike that killed Qasem Soleimani, a top Iranian general. Iran vowed revenge for that assassination. Bolton says Iran was also behind a plot against an Iranian-American woman in New York and likely the recent attack on author Salman Rushdie, though Iran denies that. They do not fear the government of the United States. They do not think they're going to be held accountable for their actions, and they can get away with it. And if they can get away with it on the terrorist front on American soil, they can sure get away with it on the nuclear front on their own soil. Bolton was speaking at the luxurious Willard Hotel in Washington at an event organized by the National Council of Resistance of Iran. It's a group that includes the MEK, which used to be on a U.S. terrorism blacklist and wants to overthrow the Iranian government. The panelists all argued that regime change is the best way to keep Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Iran watcher Karim Sajedpour says the U.S. can't count on that. Regime change is an aspiration. It's not a strategy. It's not something you can hang your hat on. Sajedpour, who's with the Carnegie Endowment, says the Obama administration had hoped that the 2015 nuclear deal would transform the region. He says the Biden administration has no such illusions, but still sees this as a priority. Because if this Iranian regime gets its hands on a nuclear weapon, then all of the other behavior that we talk about, whether it's destabilizing regional activities or plots to assassinate their opponents, Iran will feel even more a cloak of immunity if it gets a hold of a nuclear weapon. State Department spokesperson Ned Price says that's why it's important to revive the nuclear deal known as the JCPOA. In the years in which we have not had a JCPOA, since May of 2018, Iran's nuclear program has galloped forward in a way that is deeply concerning and alarming. But even if that deal is revived, Sajidpour says the U.S. needs a broader strategy, something like the U.S. approach to the Soviet Union. There was a component of that that was supporting Russian dissidents. We strengthened our allies against Russian expansionism. And I think we have to view Iran similarly. He says it can't just be one arms control deal. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton doesn't think there should be any deal at all. We've got to stop this artificial division when dealing with the government of Iran between its nuclear activities on the one hand and its terrorist activities on the other. Maybe we're capable of that analytical abstraction, but in Iran, these are all instruments of the Ayatollah's power. To revive the deal, the U.S. would have to lift sanctions. Proponents say that's worth it to put Iran's nuclear program back in a box. Critics like Bolton argue that more money will just lead to more bad behavior. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. You are listening to All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR, 79 degrees now in the Boston area. Coming up on All Things Considered, the story of how an American small-town journalist and an aspiring writer in Ukraine discovered they had a lot to learn from each other. That's just ahead on All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering online undergraduate degree completion in interdisciplinary studies. Build off previously completed college credits and earn your bachelor's degree in as few as 30 months. Learn more at bu.edu slash met. 
Red Sox and Pittsburgh Pirates play the third and final game of their series tonight in Pittsburgh. The Sox won the first two. Josh Winkowski pitches against J.T. Brubaker, 7.05 start time tonight. The drought conditions have led to an elevated fire risk today for Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy and dry, temperatures in the mid-60s. And then for tomorrow, sunshine, warmer temperatures up around 87 degrees. 79 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 549. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. That, Michael, as we understand it, is the Justice Department's position, that they believed they were not being told the truth. And it was more than just an inadvertent slip that they had been trying to work with Trump's team and been given assurances, and those assurances turned out to be false and that they couldn't let this go on any longer. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Watching the war in Ukraine play out in real time over social media, there's been this odd closeness with strangers an ocean away. You can order a drawing from a tattoo artist in Kiev or follow the Instagram feed of a soldier on the front. You can help a refugee find housing or a job, almost like we're all long-distance neighbors. Well, this next story is about the bond between two people, a local journalist, journalist in small-town New York and an aspiring writer in eastern Ukraine. They discovered they had a lot more to learn from each other than either expected. Gregory Warner from NPR's podcast Rough Translation has the story. Looking back, it is surprising that Emily Sakar and Pavel Kuyuk ever got past hello. Emily runs a hyper-local news site in the New York Hudson Valley, the Red Hook Daily Catch. She was looking for an editor to help with things like updates to the school board, spotlights of local farmers, when in came this application from Kramatorsk in eastern Ukraine. Pavel was not exactly a shoe-in for the job. He'd never been to the Hudson Valley or to the U.S., did not speak English very well, and he'd never worked as an editor. But Emily was struck by a story that Pavel proposed for the news site. He had gone through the Red Hook town board database. I don't even know where he found this. And he proposed a story with data on how revenue from dog permit licenses was down. Emily was intrigued. I sent him a note and I said, thank you for the idea. I don't think dog permits are of great interest to me right now. But tell me more about your database skills. Emily was actually working on a data story at the time about the 20 largest landlords in Red Hook. And the data had her stumped. So she asked Pavel to take a look. In less than three hours, he had the entire thing figured out. He was filling in these really important holes in the data. Emily paid him for his work and was excited to look for more data stories to work on with Pavel in Ukraine. And then Russia invaded. And Emily reached out to see how he was doing. She asked him questions. Where exactly are you? Who are you with? What sounds do you hear? Pavel would answer in Russian, his mother tongue. Then he would run it through Google Translate and email it back. We hired a voice actor to represent Pavel in English. Now the city is quiet, but silence is the most terrible sound in war. I just read it to myself. I read it out loud to my husband. I called a few people and I said, 
am I imagining things or is this really gripping? So Emily asked Pavel to write some dispatches from the war. One of the owners of the house next to us is painting his fence in red. And our neighbors are preparing grapes for spring. For all of us, it is time for a garden. We don't want war at all. Pavel had done journalism for years for outlets in Ukraine and Russia and Kazakhstan and Belarus. But his writings for The Daily Catch were more personal about his life, his garden, his wife Sveta. He talks to the readers. He answers their questions. Most of all, I like answering their questions about my garden. One offered to buy me a hose and ship it to Ukraine. I declined and I still use a watering can. But it was very touching. But as the Russian army approached closer to Pavel's city, Kramatorsk, Emily realized there were also limits to what Pavel was willing to write about. An example is I'll say, why don't you take a walk down the road and just talk to people about how they're feeling? And he says, he'll say, everybody's fine. Everybody feels fine. Where just the day before, there was a Russian airstrike five minutes from his house. And Emily was torn. She wanted to challenge Pavel, get him to report more. As a journalist, I felt I had to push. But at the same time, he told her stories about his own childhood that seemed to explain his fear of the face-to-face. I had to really make sure I was comfortable with the limitations that he placed on his own storytelling. Pavel had told Emily that when he was a kid, his father attacked his mother with a knife and stabbed her multiple times. And Pavel witnessed the whole thing. His mother lived, but his dad went to prison, and Pavel grew up without him. What happened put up a wall, separated me from others. I stopped trusting anyone, and this distrust created loneliness. After his family fell apart, so did his country. The Soviet Union collapsed at the end of 1991. When Pavel was a teenager, he supported himself by buying cigarettes in bulk and reselling them. He could not afford to finish college. Also, I want to be my best because as a child, no one told me what a good and smart boy you are. So now I try to prove that I am. And all these experiences shaped Pavel in ways that he is still processing. He describes himself as a person with a limited range of emotions. He doesn't like crowds or big cities. Still, with Emily's prodding, Pavel started looking for other ways he could report on the war without having to interview anyone. One day, he said, I have an idea. Tomorrow I'm going to go out and look at all the different kinds of ways that people are boarding their windows. We did a photo gallery called The Windows of War. The most versatile and convenient way to protect a window from a blast wave is with an ordinary piece of carpet. This is a window that's safest. This also works to black out the light. Most cost-effective. A more economical way to protect windows is with solid wooden boards. This is a window that's religious. The most amazing way to protect windows is with icons and photographs of ancestors. This person thinks that if the image of God is facing the street, then the blast wave will not destroy the window. As spring turned to summer and the war continued, Pavel kept writing dispatches, and readers in Red Hook kept wanting more. 
I would never have thought that my everyday life could be of interest to anyone. I'm not some kind of pop star, politician, or a big businessman. All this interest from outsiders in Pavel's own life started to give him the courage to get interested in the lives of his own neighbors, the ones who hadn't fled. For the first time in his life, he sat down and did a whole interview with someone. He says it was one of the scariest and most rewarding things he's ever made himself do. I didn't expect that I would grow working for the Daily Catch. Didn't think I would. But it has been a challenge for me, a challenge that's made me grow. Emily says she realized how much Pavel had changed her when she was talking one day to a local farmer in Red Hook. And I thought, I don't know as much about your life as I know about Pavel's life. And so she started asking this farmer a lot more personal questions. A curiosity sparked, she says, by her conversations with someone very, very far away. Gregory Warner is the host of our podcast, Rough Translation, where you can hear more reporting on Ukraine and stories from around the world. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina or from all agents. From Easy Cater, committed to solving food for today's workplaces, from sales meetings to employee lunches. Online ordering from more than 80,000 restaurants. Corporate food solutions at easycater.com. From CrowdStrike, their cloud-native platform is designed to protect businesses from cyber attacks, ransomware, and data theft, at home, at the office, and everywhere in between. More at crowdstrike.com NPR. And from the Lemelson Foundation. This is WBUR. Still have a nice breeze around this evening. Partly cloudy overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-60s. And then make way for sunshine tomorrow. Warmer temperatures, too, up around 87 degrees. For the weekend, sunny skies yet again. It should be in the mid-80s on Saturday. A few degrees cooler on Sunday, but still in the 80s. Red Sox will tap Josh Winkowski tonight as they try to seal a sweep of the Pirates in Pittsburgh for Game 3 in the series. J.T. Brubaker has the mound for the Pirates. This is 90.9 WBUR, 79 degrees at 559. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. response to the monkeypox outbreak centers around a vaccine, but it is not clear how well the vaccine works. It can reduce the severity of the disease if you do develop the disease, but we don't know for a fact that you would be completely protected. It's Thursday, August 18th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story coming up. Also, one year after Kabul fell to the Taliban, the former Afghanistan education minister reflects on her country today. And this evening on Marketplace, inflation is raising the cost of living and workers are looking for help from their employers. They know exactly what they want. 
like all the warm and fuzzy messages cannot compare with I know something that'll help here's some more money <laughs> thank you that really does help how will inflation affect your bonus that's tonight on marketplace at 6 30 it's now 601 Live from NPR News, I'm Janine Herbst. A federal magistrate judge says he's inclined to release the affidavits supporting the FBI's search of former President Donald Trump's Florida home. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the judge is giving the Justice Department a week to propose redactions. The judge says he's not convinced the entire affidavit needs to remain under seal. Instead, he's ordered prosecutors to prepare a redacted version and send that version to him by August 25th. National Security official Jay Bratt told the court DOJ worries about threats to witnesses and to the FBI agents who carried out the Mar-a-Lago search. He says the criminal investigation, which involves obstruction and mishandling government secrets, is in its early stages. Former President Donald Trump has not filed formal court papers since last week's search. Instead, Trump posted on social media that the document should be released in the interest of transparency. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. China's Commerce Ministry says it's opposed to formal trade talks between the U.S. and Taiwan. The U.S. Trade Representative's office said yesterday it was beginning official negotiations with Taiwan to streamline trade on agriculture to digital services. NPR's Emily Fang reports on the ongoing tensions over Taiwan. A spokesperson for the Chinese Commerce Ministry said that China will, quote, take all necessary measures to safeguard its sovereignty. China maintains it has political control over Taiwan and that the self-governed island is not an independent country. Taiwan says 51 Chinese aircraft buzzed the Taiwan Strait after the trade negotiations were announced. China is still holding military drills around Taiwan. Those exercises began after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan earlier this month and resumed when a U.S. congressional delegation left the self-governed island this week. Emily Fang, NPR News. Israel raided the offices of several Palestinian rights groups in the occupied West Bank. Israel had previously designated them as terrorist organizations. Empire's Fat Matanis reports the rights groups have denied the charges. Israeli forces confiscated equipment at the offices of seven rights groups. They welded entrances shut and left notices declaring them closed. Among the organizations is Al Haq, a prominent Palestinian rights group that documents alleged human rights violations by Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Last year, Israel outlawed the groups claiming ties with the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is considered a terror group by the U.S. and the European Union. But just last month, nine European countries said they had seen no substantial evidence to support Israel's claims and that they would continue to work with the groups. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Jerusalem. Wall Street higher by the closing bell, the Dow up 18 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Nearly four years after the notorious Boston mobster James Whitey Bulger was killed in prison, three men will face charges in connection with his death. Federal prosecutors announced the indictments today. WBUR's Ali Germanning has more. 
Bulger and the other three men were all incarcerated at a West Virginia federal prison when the 89-year-old Bulger was killed. Prosecutors say Freddie Gias and Paul DiCollegero struck Bulger in the head multiple times, killing him. Both are charged with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, among other charges. They remain incarcerated. A third man, Sean McKinnon, was charged with making false statements to a federal agent. He had since been released and was arrested in Florida. Gias and DiCollegero both had connections to Massachusetts organized crime. Gias is serving a life sentence for killing a mob boss in Springfield. DiCollegero was a member of a North Shore organized crime group. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. Members of the National Guard are fighting a 20-acre wildfire in Rockport. Governor Charlie Baker called them up today for the job. The crew of 15 is trying to contain the blaze, which has been going on for about a month. National Guard Sergeant First Class Steve Littlefield says the work is harder than normal because of the drought. The problem is that when it burns this long, it goes deep into the ground, right? So you can spray water on it all day, but unless you're digging up the earth and getting what's underneath, it's never going to fully go out until we get a lot of rain, which we have not gotten. Littlefield says at this point the wildfire does not pose a danger to residential areas of Rockport. The Rockport fire is one of at least three wildfires burning in the state today. Others have closed parkland in Saugus and Lynn. The drought conditions that have caused the elevated fire risk today are intensifying. Meteorologist Danielle Noyce says today's report from the U.S. Drought Monitor shows conditions are worsening statewide. 100% of the state is now experiencing some sort of drought conditions. 39% of us in the extreme category now, 55% classified as severe. The latest update expanding that extreme category into the central part of the state from Route 2 to the New Hampshire border. And we've been seeing the effects, water restrictions, tree damage, some crop damage and losses. City of Boston in a deficit of over 10 inches now, putting us at the fourth driest year ever and the driest summer to date. I wish I could say there's some rain in the forecast. Not much, though. Tuesday brings a threat for numerous storms, but nothing substantial enough to even put a minor dent in the drought. Should be partly cloudy overnight tonight and dry. Lows in the mid-60s, then clouds exit for the weekend. Sunshine tomorrow, warmer temperatures too, up around 87 degrees. Saturday and Sunday, sunny skies again in the mid-80s for Saturday. A few degrees cooler on Sunday, but should still be in the 80s. 79 degrees now in the Boston area at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. On a Thursday, it's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Juana Summers. There has been a development related to the search of President Trump's Florida home. At a hearing today, a federal magistrate reached a compromise, ruling that the government must provide a redacted version of the affidavit that justified last week's search of Mar-a-Lago. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart gave the government a week to produce the affidavit with sensitive information blocked, a sign that the currently sealed document could soon be released in some form. NPR's Greg Allen was in the courtroom in West Palm Beach today, and he joins us now. Hi, Greg. Hi, Juana. So affidavits like these are almost never unsealed, especially while an investigation is still ongoing. So, Greg, can you tell us why the court is considering releasing this one, at least partially, it sounds like? Right. Well, well one reason is that there really aren't other cases like this one. Uh, Judge Reinhardt 
and the lawyers, both for the government and media organizations, all talked about the unprecedented nature of this case and the heightened public interest. You know, we're talking about the search of a former president's residence to recover government documents that include classified material. They also agreed that under the law, the burden is on the government now to show why it must, why these documents must remain sealed. Uh, sealed. A lawyer for the Justice Department, counterintelligence chief Jay Bratt, first tried to convince the judge that the affidavit should be sealed. Unsealing, he said, would provide a roadmap to a criminal investigation that he said is still in its early stages. It also could have an impact on witnesses, he said. It could endanger those whose identities were disclosed in the affidavit. It could also discourage additional witnesses from cooperating in the future as this investigation goes forward. Uh, Judge Reinhardt has seen the affidavit, of course. He reviewed it before approving the search warrant. And after hearing all the arguments, he said he believed that it can be released with redactions. Okay, so, so far, has there been any sort of indication of how much of the affidavit will be left after it is redacted? That's a good question. Uh, it's really hard to say at this point. Lawyers for media organizations agreed that portions of the affidavit uh, should be redacted, you know, the parts that identify witnesses or agents or deal with the investigation. Uh, the government lawyer uh, mentioned the volatile situation surrounding the search, which makes it so sensitive. He talked about the two FBI agents whose identities were disclosed early on and who received death threats as part of this. He also mentioned the incident last week in Cincinnati where a man who was trying to break into an FBI office and then was killed. At one point he said, so much would have to be redacted from the document, what remained would be largely useless to the media and the public. Attorneys for media organizations conceded that there would have to be redactions, but they pointed out that much of the information likely in the affidavit has already been disclosed. With the, uh, the classified nature of the documents, the meetings between the National Archives and Trump lawyers uh, about the material at Mar-a-Lago, a lot of that's already been disclosed by Trump and in media reports and is probably in the affidavit. So ultimately, the judge agreed with the media groups and said that the government should produce a redacted version and he gave him a few, a few more days to do so. A few more days. So what else do we know about that timing? How soon could we see some part of this affidavit? Well, again, it's up in the air. The government has until next Thursday at noon to submit a redacted affidavit to the judge. And if he agrees with their redactions, he could just sign an order and release it fairly soon, maybe as early as next week. But if, as seems likely, there is some disagreement between the judge and the government on the redactions, that could begin a back and forth between the government and the judge. Uh, some of it might be in his chambers with a, someone, a, a court reporter there, or some of it might just be in motions going back and forth. It all could take some time. And then if the government ultimately disagrees with what the judge rules, it may appeal the decision. Okay. And the judge said the affidavit would remain under seal uh, for some time, uh, well, until the appeals are exhausted. So it's possible we might not see actually uh, the release of this affidavit for, for weeks or even longer. All right, watching and waiting. NPR's Greg Allen in West Palm Beach, Florida. Thank you. You're welcome. It was about three months ago that the first case of monkeypox was discovered in the U.S. Now there are well over 13,000 cases. That is more than any other country in the world. The U.S. government's plan to get the disease in check is largely based on a vaccine, but there are a lot of questions about how well that plan might work. So here to take on those questions are two of our NPR health correspondents, Ping Huang and Michaeline Duclef. Hey, you two. Hello, Louise. Um, Ping, you start. Just give us an update. There have been a lot of twists and turns in the vaccine rollout so far. How's it going? Well, it's not going great. I mean, from the beginning, the government was slow to order vaccines. There was a lot of confusion from states, cities, and there have been long lines of people waiting to get it, and many people haven't been able to get one yet. You know, months into the response, the government is still playing catch-up. 
They've recently set up a White House response team. They've shipped more than 700,000 vials of the vaccine out, and they are working to get a lot more, but it just has not been enough. Cases keep rising. The vast majority are still being detected in gay and queer people, primarily men who have sex with men. And states and public health officials are getting very frustrated. The added complication is that the White House is now pursuing a new dosing strategy, which involves giving a smaller vaccine dose to more people. And that's been controversial for some. A smaller dose. OK, what, what is the controversy there? Well, previously, getting that vaccine meant getting a full vial injected into your arm. And now with this new strategy, a smaller dose is getting injected into the skin very close to the surface. And this allows providers to use one fifth of the original dose, which stretches the supply. And that sounds great, right? Stretching the supply. But it isn't all that simple. I mean, from a messaging perspective, it's been very confusing trying to explain why the government thinks a smaller dose will work just as well. Yeah. From a perspective of giving it out, it also takes additional training, different needles. And Dr. Mark Del Beccaro, who's helping to lead the vaccine rollout in Seattle and King County, says it's just hard to get these small doses out of the vials. That the federal announcement of five doses per vial was, I think, incredibly optimistic. And what we're seeing in real life is three to four doses per vial. In reality, this dose-splitting strategy is not yielding as much as federal officials had hoped. And yet, Del Vaccaro says it seems like the government is already using this new math when they count how many doses they're sending to health departments. Michaeline, let me back us up a little bit. Ping's been telling us about vaccine availability, or lack thereof. What about efficacy? If you can get the vaccine, does it work? Yeah, so here's another reason why cutting the dose, as Ping's been talking about, is a bit concerning. Right now, we don't know how well the vaccine works. It clearly offers some protection, but at what level, we don't know. And that's because there has never been a clinical trial to measure its efficacy. In fact, there has been very little testing of this vaccine against monkeypox in people. Most of the studies have been in animals. I was talking to Dr. Bahuma Tatangi about this. She's an infectious disease specialist at Emory University, and she's been immunizing people at her clinic. And here's how she counsels people about the vaccine. I tell them... You know, we do know that you're going to get some protection from this. Some protection is better than no protection. We also do know that it can reduce the severity of the disease if you do develop the disease. But we don't know for a fact that you would be completely protected from getting monkeypox. And to be clear, she's talking about protection with the full vial. If we cut the dose, she says, it could lower that protection further. Can I pause on something you just said? There's been very little testing. You said there's never been a clinical trial for this vaccine. What is the evidence for giving it to people right now? Yeah, so there's never been a phase three clinical trial to measure efficacy. But this vaccine, which is called Genios, was actually developed to stop smallpox. Versions of this vaccine were what were used to eradicate smallpox. And so versions of this vaccine have been around for decades and have been given to hundreds of millions of people. So it has a very long track record. Back in the 1980s, researchers started to notice something really remarkable about the smallpox vaccine. During monkeypox outbreaks, People who had been immunized against smallpox were actually less likely to get monkeypox. They were protected. And that's because smallpox is closely related to monkeypox. They're a bit like cousins. And since then, researchers have shown that indeed the vaccine does trigger the production of antibodies against monkeypox inside people's blood. And so it's that experiment and some animal studies that this vaccine has been approved on. 
Um, let me pose another question and, and put this one back to you, Ping. There's the question of, does the vaccine work? There's the question of, do we have enough of them? Then there's the question of, do people want this? Does it seem like people are open to getting the monkeypox vaccine? Actually, yes. I mean, there's a huge demand right now, and there's many more people that want the vaccine than can actually get it. And one of the biggest concerns at the moment is equity. You know, a disproportionately high number of Black, Latinx members of the gay and queer community are getting monkeypox, and the data suggests that they have had a harder time getting access to vaccines. In North Carolina, for instance, 70% of the monkeypox cases have been in Black men, but just a quarter of the vaccines have gone to them. Chicago has also seen gaps in vaccines for Black and Latino men, and these are just the places that have shared their data. Kenyon Farrow with the advocacy organization Prep for All says a sentiment that he's been seeing online, especially from gay men of color. Okay, so they let white gay men take all the, the first, you know, full force of doses. And so we're now supposed to believe that, you know, a fifth of the dose is going to do us just as well. Farrow says that public health has a lot of work to do in terms of explaining why they believe that this new strategy is not inferior. Michaelina, I'll give you last word. If we can get enough doses out there and get them to the people who need it and get the people who need it to take it, can, realistically, can we still slow down this outbreak? So there's some tantalizing new data right now that suggests that, yes, this vaccine can slow down monkeypox outbreaks. There are several countries that rolled out the vaccine much earlier than the U.S. did, and that, that includes the U.K. and Germany. And there are signs that their outbreaks are slowing down quite quickly. In the U.K., for example, the number of new cases has been steadily declining for several weeks now. So that's hopeful. But Doctors and researchers I talked to say the vaccine alone isn't enough to stop the outbreak here. People need to reduce their risk. And this is key. Doctors need to catch more of the monkeypox cases out there. Right now, many are still not getting detected. NPR health correspondents Michaeline Duclef and Peng Huang, thanks to you both. You're welcome. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the state of girls' education in Afghanistan, one year after the Taliban regained its grip on the country. The Dow ended the day on Wall Street a smidge higher, up 19 points to close at 33,999. S&P and Nasdaq both closed about a fifth of a percent higher. S&P settled at 42.84. The Nasdaq closed at 12,965. Cambridge Biotech and co- uh, company and COVID maker uh, vaccine maker Moderna has a new chief financial officer. James Mock is set to take over the role. He's former CFO at the life sciences diagnostics company Perkin Elmer. Mock will be Moderna's third CFO in the last year. He takes over for David Moline in the next several weeks. Moline returned to the company for retirement after his initial replacement was fired after one day on the job. And Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is launching a program to help long-standing independent businesses in the city. The Legacy Business Program will offer 25 businesses greater visibility, services, and eligibility for grants. To qualify, a business must have operated in the same location in Boston for 10 years or longer and have contributed to culture, history, and society. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont. 
where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek, citysidesubaru.com. And the Boston Symphony Orchestra, seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Drought conditions have led to an elevated fire risk today for Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. It's going to be dry overnight tonight and for the next several days. Partly cloudy skies tonight. Temperatures in the mid-60s and sunshine tomorrow. Highs about 87. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And Prompt.com, with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at Prompt.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. The choice to flee Afghanistan was not an easy one for Rangina Hamidi. When I spoke with her last year, she was still in Kabul, debating what she and her husband should do as Taliban forces captured city after city in the country. She described the fear that she felt as she watched her daughter play with a friend outside. But me as a mother sitting in my home, feeling the unease, It struck me to think and look at them and say, God forbid, but something can happen any minute. And these joyous little girls playing in the garden uh, may end in a second. Rangina Hamidi was Afghanistan's Minister of Education until last August. And today she joins us from Arizona, where she and her family have started their life anew. Welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. You know, when you and I spoke a a year ago, you knew you would have a chance to leave Afghanistan with your husband if it came to that. A chance that you said you knew so many others did not have. May, May I ask you, how did you manage to leave the country? Finally, after one week of debating, uh, debating in the head, really, uh, emotionally, whether we should leave or not. Um, I think finally my motherly instincts and then the fact that my immediate family, my mother and sisters and uh, extended family members who were living in America uh, were pleading with me uh, to please not allow the opportunity for them to suffer yet one more time because um, if the audience or if you remember my family did lose my father yes. to a side bomber in 2011. In Kandahar. Exactly. Finally, I think we had no choice but to look at the deadline that was in our face. The clock was ticking, literally. August 31st was going to be the last planes to leave. Hmm. Ultimately, we, we, we had to. And you were one of the lucky ones. You're a U.S. citizen, right? Absolutely. Well, I understand that your daughter is in seventh grade right now. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes. And I ask this because the Taliban has barred education for girls between seventh and twelfth grade back in Afghanistan. So if your daughter were still there, her formal education would essentially be over, right? Do you ever think about that as you watch your daughter now do her homework or go to class? You know, Alsa, this was the main reason why I ultimately had to make the decision to leave because I knew Zara would not have, at least immediately, 
she would not have a future under that administration. Um, and of course, dropping her off to school, picking her up from school, you know, listening to her little mind growing and learning and debating. Mm -hmm. uh, this is an experience that I'm privileged as a parent, as a mother in particular, to, to witness and watch. And I know that millions and millions of parents today in Afghanistan, particularly with girls Zara's age, are not able to provide that right. opportunity for their girls. And what are you hearing from people back home about how girls there are still trying to continue their education despite the new rules? How are they doing that? You know, and it's really a case-by-case -case basis. Parents who were educated or who are educated and still remain, they're trying their best to get the books and mm -hmm. continue on homeschooling. Some areas in the northern part of Afghanistan, there are about six or seven provinces. Nobody really exactly knows which provinces exactly, but what we're hearing is that schools have continued for girls up until 12th grade in those provinces. I've had families contact me and asking whether these families should consider sending their girls to Pakistan across the border to complete their schooling. Now, what are the implications of going and starting a new system and then completing it? Right. And even when it's completed, the credentials or the the you know, the, the, the diploma that these right. girls may not might, transfer, may not transfer. Mm -hmm. and so there's just a lot of logistical problems. And then ultimately, the question comes to if the Ministry of Education of Afghanistan does not recognize the forms of education we are providing to girls through all these alternative uh, pathways, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what can the girls then do with that knowledge other than use it to their best advantage, but without any official paperwork to... Yeah. Um, well, let me ask you, as someone who, who was a leader in Afghanistan, in making sure that girls and women received an education there, what is it like for you personally to picture all of these efforts, these lengths that these girls have to go to, to continue learning? I mean, it, it breaks my heart as a leader, as a woman, as a mother, because I don't know if you remember, Elsa, but I myself was stopped from going to school in grade three when I was a refugee living in Pakistan, an Afghan refugee living in Pakistan. And one of the reasons my, my, why my parents made the decision to come all the way to America uh, back in 1988 was to be able to enable their five daughters or you know, at that time, uh, four daughters when we came to America to continue school. And so... Of course, this is very personal and, and, and a, a very emotional issue to me. I'm not surprised that in the areas where girls' education has continued today, in spite of the Taliban wanting to stop it, the regions that, that continue to provide education to girls are the regions that were the most served and the most invested in. Yeah. And so that fact needs to be considered when we're making policies and programs, because areas that do receive attention and consistent service, yeah. those are the areas that flourish. And now we're seeing yeah. the results yeah. of that. You know, the last time that you and I spoke, you said that when you were younger, when you returned to Afghanistan after finishing college in the U.S., you said that there was this, quote, magnetic force that kept you in Afghanistan longer than you had originally expected. And I'm curious... Do you still feel that pull now? Do you think you will ever return to your country? 
Elsa, I'm ready to return tomorrow hmm. if I can. You know, my my heart, my soul, my mind is all in Afghanistan. Um, I'm physically in America right now, in my adopted home, and I'm forever grateful to this opportunity. And, you know, Zara, my daughter, is the reason why I'm still here. But yeah. I'm ready to go back tomorrow if I know that my daughter can have an opportunity to grow um, in the manner in which I want her to grow, and that I can also be able to survive. And I'm not, I'm not afraid of death. You know, I've, I've accepted that as part of reality and having lived in Afghanistan for 20 years and the, the risks that we all took on a daily basis, I consider service of my people, of my women, of my girls as an honest spiritual duty where I know that I can be far more beneficial to them when I'm closer to them than when I'm afar but I'm ready to go as soon as the opportunity presents itself. Yeah. Rangina Hamidi was Afghanistan's Minister of Education until last year. She is now a professor of practice at Arizona State University. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for having me, Elsa. Always great to talk to you. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software. Powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. And Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today, and with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit eversource.com.